in a normal doctor's office in Prague. Buenos Aires! Sorry, sorry, Buenos Aires! I'll, I'll get the hang of this one day. Could Mr. Martin Flannoy make his way to Dr. Sprang, who's stationary bike and await instructions? Yes, sorry, nurse. I was asked to go to a stationary bike. Uh, there must be some mistake. Through the door there. What? First bike on the left. I haven't got all day. There are 15 of your clones in the basement that I have to wax later. What? Um, oh, sorry, yes, um, I have lots more patients to get through. <laughs> Must be the change of weather. Always brings out the flues. Through the door, you can't miss Dr. Sprang's bike. It's a rather delightful and, some may say, a rousing shade of mottled purple. Um, thank you, nurse. Oh, fucking hell, small talk is exhausting. <laughs> Another nurse dead, Klaus the wheelbarrow. Mr. Artichoke. Flodenoy. Doesn't matter. Hop up on here, Mr. Party Pogan. Let's see what's wrong with you. Uh, okay. Um, is this normal? Is it some newfangled thing? Uh, I've never done this before. Oh, dear. You never had your own bike as a child? May I ask, was your dad a communist? Oh, no. No, I've had a bike. I've ridden a bike many times, uh, but I meant I've never, well, you know, never in a doctor's office. Oh, we don't use the word office here anymore, Mr. Farty Bloke. Surveys have shown that women between the ages of 55 and 57 and a half find it mildly offensive when you shout it right in their old confused faces rather loudly in Flemish. We prefer the more gender-neutral and less threatening word, fluffy pudding. So, actually, you've never ridden a stationary bike in a doctor's fluffy pudding. Right, yeah, well, I guess. Well, I saw it on some program or other. One of those daytime things, hosted by Biggles or something. Uh, auburn hair, brown overalls. I think they torture celebrities with fire ants and a more obnoxious selection of sting LPs. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Start peddling. What? Pedal man, I ask the questions here. You're not a doctor, are you? No, I'm a florist. Exactly. When was the last time a florist knew anything of any note? Anyway, get peddling and leave the questions up to me, Mr. Hearty Joe. Flirtinoy. Not anymore. Right, so what seems to be the matter then? Keep peddling, man. These pork chops aren't going to cook themselves. What did you see? I asked the questions. Pedal man, Jesus Christ, I've seen lesbians on a cruise liner with more ability to take instructions than you. I said, what seems to be the matter? Well... Before it was some headaches, but now, uh, if I'm honest, it's this peddling. <sighs> well, I can't do anything about that. That'd be silly. The headaches, on the other hand, tell me more about those, Mr. Smarty Toad. Well, they started about three days ago. I don't really care. Changing tack a little, Mr. Tarty So when was the last time you ovulated? I don't ovulate. I'm a man. Not from where I'm standing. Do you know that 15% of all forest fires are caused by bears playing dress-up as Joan of Arc? Is that true? Of course it's true. I'm a doctor. Behold my diplomas. They're written in crayon and stuck to the wall with bats of chewing gum. Well, those ones are. Yes, of course, you imbecile. You don't expect me to keep the real ones on the wall for oh, bastards Jesus like Christ. you to walk in here, steal and do perverted sexual acts too, probably wearing a policeman's uniform with a crutch cut out and a large spangling cowboy hat. My son wrote up these diplomas, and I'm very proud of the lad. Quite remarkable for a boy of his age. How old is he? 35. Right, so I'm going to prescribe you another hour and 20 minutes on this bike, then clean up my mantelpiece, deflate the multiple giant novelty rubber hardware tools that are littering this fluffy pudding, and then take two of these very scary-looking bright orange pills once a day after a meal to an old homeless man on Bundesstrasse, and he'll pee on you. I'm not doing any of that. If you don't, Mr. Pennyfarthing, I will hunt you down where you stand and tell everyone about that birthmark in the shape of Hitler's tits on your right thigh. 
Things went on like this for quite some time, until Mr. Flirtnoy noticed a strange light emitting from under the door in an outer office, before he could turn the handle to enter. And what do you want? Well, if I'm honest, I want to know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> I've been on that stationary <laughs> bike for ages, my body's a bit disintegrated. That's so fucking funny. Oh, you don't know. <laughs> you haven't guessed it. <laughs> what a twat. Oh, you're on candid camera. This whole thing has been part of an elaborate prank pulled by Methodists. Why? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, because of all the rampant promiscuity? What balls? You'll be hearing for me, lawyers. Oh, dear. That was a clip of next week's show on horse tranquilizing, presented in six parts by quite a lot of people in bright orange tank tops who still live with their mother and don't know what vagina tastes like. Much like our next show. Yes, you guessed it. It's that after movie diner. The after movie diner. The after. God. Uh, look, I'll get it right one of these days. Christ. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? There's no more room in hell. The dead will walk the earth. We stop the one of us. We stop the one of us. Super gobble, super gobble. Who's laughing now? Who's laughing now? Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they Red rum! Red rum! Red rum! Red rum! I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You want to know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You got any idea how much blood jets out of a guy's neck? They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Coming to get you, Barbara. Just been informed that zombies have entered the building. They're at the door. They're coming in. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs> The After Movie Diner presents Horrortober. You see, it's like horror films in October put together because of Halloween and everything. <clears throat>
Here's Johnny. That's right. Here I am. Right, diving into the announcement of the winners of our Horrortober, Don't Let the River Beast Get You DVD giveaway, a bit like one might dive into a vat of ice-chilled whiskey at a topless gathering of Miss April's at a baseball player's garden party, I am happy to say that we have not one, but two winners this week, and that Mr. Chris Jones of the Devil Clown Syndicate and author of the book Mummy Do My Nipples Make Me Kill, and Robert Long from Baltimore's excessively chic Alien Polishing Bureau and owner of the head of Alfredo Garcia, will be receiving their very own free copy of Don't Let the River Beast Get You. Please email me addresses, both of you guys, etc. at aftermoviediner at gmail.com. Also, if you wish to just email me any old nonsense, please do that as well, other listeners, at aftermoviediner at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And now it's time for me to get my big dirty sack out. Here comes the postman. I wonder what he has for me. Is there something in his big brown sack? I wonder what could it be? Well, I hope the bills it lacks and instead brings me some list of feedback. Or maybe, just maybe, a big bag of crack. Oh, here comes the postman. I wonder what he has for me. we got a lovely email this week from Eric Hodgins. Uh, He writes, After seeing your Facebook post, I decided it was about time I send you some feedback. I first started listening to your podcast after hearing your guest appearance on Schlock Treatment's Evil Dead episode. You know what? It is surprising the number of people who say that. I should probably go back and do another Evil Dead episode at Schlock Treatment. Anyway, uh, I I looked up your podcast shortly after and have been hooked ever since. Well, thank you ever so much, Eric. We do like to know uh, when people start listening and that they are continual uh, regular listeners. That's fantastic. Please do tell all your friends and family. He goes on to say, I loved the Cronenberg episode and was glad to hear what you thought of Dead Ringers. I felt very much the same, but wondered if maybe there was just something I wasn't quite getting. It's nice to know that I'm not the only one who found it dull and somewhat pointless. Also, there was a mention of Peter Weller during that episode. Any chance of doing an episode on the Robocop franchise? Keep up the great work. Looking forward to your next episode. Well, thank you ever so much for writing, Eric. As for uh, doing an episode on the Robocop franchise, I wouldn't rule it out at all. It would probably be with my good friend, Dr. Action. Uh, he would probably come on and we'd probably talk about it, or we'd do it as a commentary over on Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid commentaries. Uh, I have not seen the whole of the franchise, and uh, I'm not a sort of out-and-out Robocop fan, but I would definitely watch it and definitely do an episode on it. So, uh, yes, expect that at some point, but I, I have no plans right away. Okay, well, thank you for writing in, and uh, with that, on to our very new segment, which features my wife. Oh, just you listen to your missus or miss out on all those kisses. If you're missing the kissing, then just listen to your missus. Okay, so we've just got back from the first day of our two-day horror movie marathon um, that Nick and Laurel have been putting on. And we're just going to do a little sort of five-minute rundown of the movies we've watched. There's a little section with the wife today. Uh, so uh, we have in the studio uh, Dr. Fiona Frankis, and uh, we're going to be discussing four films that we, we, we watched today. So the first one that came up was House of Wax, starring Vincent Price. What were your thoughts on that? I liked the beginning. I liked his character as the, the professor, the one that molded the wax into all these... Uh, he had these historical figures, and he was getting a lot of... His business partner wanted him to make it more fantastical and, you know, to get business. He wanted him to have these horror 
wax figures. You right. Know, and yeah, more um, something that was more more eye-catching for the audience, more sickening. Whereas he had things about, like, um, you know, Booth shooting Lincoln and... Um, well, he already had some, but he was doing sort of historical Finesse. beauty. That yeah, was historical beauty. And uh, from there, so everything seemed great. Um, and then his business partner decides to kill him, burn all his wax figures in order to get claim insurance. And... Um, Vic, uh, Vincent Price's uh, character loved like he actually spoke to me at uh, Marie Antoinette like she was his real love life or something yeah and then it sort of goes on from there we can't really say too much about it because it would spoil right. it for people who haven't seen it but um so I did like um there was a bit when uh, one of the main characters I forget her name that lead lady uh when she's being tra- chased down the street by her friend's killer and going down the alleyway, and she finally takes off her shoes to be more quiet, and she then pounds on that door to be let in, and it's coming after her, this weird creature thing. Deformed guy, right? Ah, uh, that was scary. You enjoyed that, that bit? Because it was made in 1953, set at the turn of the century, and it was, it, it had a lot of things that you common, commonly think more of horror movies from a later era. Like, it had a lot of makeup, prosthetics, mm-hmm. it had, um, you know, the stalker, it had the outfit, it had the, you know, serial killing aspect of it, it had a revenge plot, it had that amazing action-packed, you know, stunt-filled opening that was, I mean, for me, I thought that was the most eye-catching bit, was the... That was really good. You know, there was two actors, you saw their faces, the building was being set on on fire fire constantly... And on top of that, even though it was only a sort of eight-minute opening scene, you completely understood in that eight-minute opening scene, as rushed as it was, that Vincent Price had this affinity with his with his creations. Yep. And so that when they were set fire to, you really felt every every burn. That is true. You did, and I don't. I didn't really know a younger Vincent Price because is that his younger days? I don't know a lot of his movies though. I mean, Just his name. But sure, uh, and it was a lot of the, you know, like Deadly Do-Right, where the damsel's on the train tracks and the train is coming, um, which I liked. But that never happened in the film. No, I'm saying that sort of thing where will they get there in time. Oh, right. You mean uh, a damsel in peril type thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that whole end climax was... Right. It, was, was so, crazy. yeah, it's very climatic and, uh, and had a lot of, uh, you know, had a bit of a twist to it. It felt modern. It didn't feel old to yes, me at all. Yes, that's very true. That, it did feel modern, whereas the creature from the Black Lagoon that we saw the night before, sure. that that seemed more of a, like you said, the melodra- a melodrama. Right, but even film. that... And I loved it, but it, that didn't seem as modern, in a way. See, I felt that both movies weren't dated for me at all. I thought both movies, while they were stylistic in the way the dialogue was... I didn't think that the dress or the action in either movie dated it. I thought the dialogue dated it, if anything. You didn't think the dress and that lady put on five layers? Oh, no, but that was set at the turn of the century, so it wasn't, it wasn't set in 1953. Right. So you could do that movie now. I mean, they wear corsets and things in oh, costume dramas and stuff like that. Really good? I think House of Wax benefits from being a period piece because it means that it's not of the time it was made. You don't watch it and think, oh, this is very 1953. 
but a very a very modern style horror. It was, of course, famously in 3D when it came out, and it was one of the most successful 3D oh. movies of its day. Really, I like the ping pong. Uh, ping pong. No, it's not ping pong. What was it? Uh, what do you call it? No, no, he had, he had ping pong. Uh, he had the elasticated the, uh, a, string. We should figure out what it's called. But paddle. Balls. It's like a paddle paddle ball. But yeah, batten balls. Where you um, just batten that batten you could tell in 3D would have been amazing. Yeah. And he kept doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he'd say, oh, lady, I'm going to get your popcorn. And then they'd go right to the camera. So. Right. But that was the only scene in it that was played directly for the 3D. I felt right. like... In- Everything else was... Yeah, that, that one in particular, I felt. But then again, we just were coming back from an intermission. Right. So it would be kind of a... But I thought Creature from the Black Lagoon had far more scenes in it where stuff were coming at the camera. Whereas... You were like in the lagoon. Yeah. Because there's all this depth to it. Yeah. And things right in front of you. Right, but then there were scenes where they deliberately fired the harpoon gun at the, the That's camera. True. But the still, you didn't the feel like they were doing that. Where in this one, it was only that. Um, the bat and ball gun, yeah. yeah. So that was the first one, House of Wax. I would strongly suggest people who haven't checked it out to check it out because it's a, it's a very good film, very modern in its, in its sensibility. Uh, a really eye-opening action scene to begin with. A good, tense, heart-pounding finale. I liked uh, all the characters. Some nice little bits of humor. I liked the two police. The two that, police yeah, guys were, were awesome. Uh, and also humor. the two mortician guys in the mortuary. The two orderlies oh, yeah. in the hospital. They were funny. That was good. So that was very good. And then we went on to George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which you don't have to say a ton about because I think every podcast under the sun has covered George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. But uh, just tell us how you first came across that movie. And well, what I saw Night of the Living Dead in the drive-in. It was one of these all-night movies where they'd play to, um, you know, just out in cinema movies, but then they'd play three uh, old-time B-movies. And if you stayed all night um, until dawn, they would give you a free movie pass, and then you could come back to the drive-in, you know, at any time for free. So it was, like, it was a carload. Yeah, a carload yeah. pass. So I was with my friend Becky, and she had a hatchback, and so we'd just, like, you know, reverse the car put the hatchback up and we'd stay all night you know have our popcorn and treats and um and most people would leave after the first two films or you know definitely but after the third and then during one of these i think i even saw the i am legend one the last man on earth but and i saw I, i'd seen a lot of them that way and i don't always know their titles or whatever right. because but that was my first uh time ever watching b movies really besides the mystery theater or whatever that was called right um but, yeah, that one. But then, uh, and then I saw Day of the Dead because my brother, he used to love horror films. And I just, but I forgot the name of it. So it wasn't until I spoke to you about it. I said right. there was this one where it was like they were doing tests on them and they were in a tunnel. And I started to describe it to you and you said that was Day of the Dead. Because it was so exciting because I wanted to see it again because I remember it was horrifying. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't remember the name of it. And I never saw Dawn of the Dead. I think... I think I might have seen the remake before I saw Dawn of the Dead, right. actually. Um, I, unlike you, I, do, I did like the remake as well. Yeah, um, I, can, I can enjoy Fast Zombies. I, I can tell you that now, uh, if you watched it now, it has not aged well. I can, I can bet you that. Yeah, probably so. It was just there were some funny bits um, but it's also that the... I thought were humorous in it. But no, of course I prefer this original. Um, and I think Dawn of the Dead... Romero is one of my favorite ones, I yeah. think. Well, it is. I mean, what struck me most, um, and I must have seen this film 50 times, but what struck me again today 
um, was that where it stands out, certainly within the first hour of its thing, uh, to almost any other zombie film, is the fact that killing the dead, you know, shooting them in the head or whatever, uh, and actually disposing of them, certainly within the first hour before they get to the mall, has some weight to it. Like, it actually emotionally affects the characters. Now, at a certain point, the characters become dead to it inside, they become crazier, they do it in order to survive, or they, you know, make peace with the fact that they have to kill these creatures. But in the opening sequence, the, the one of the most... Like, everyone talks about the social satire in that movie being about the shopping mall, and to some extent it is. But I think far more the social satire in that movie is the sequence in the projects at the beginning. I think that's oh, that's all true. Yeah, I did pay attention to more to that this time. Um, I just like the idea of them going to a shopping mall, and I just want them to, you know, like clear out the zombies, make sure none of them can get back in, right. and do what they eventually do, which is just be able to live there because they have all their supplies for, you know, right. the next year or two. And I just, I enjoyed that part, like, of everything they do to make that their home. Right. And then, you know, and then the bikers come. But even, you also get the feeling that, because what the what um, he says, and this is another thing I picked up again today, is he says at the end, you know, they might break into the mall, but at the same time they're letting all those zombies in. So it's not just, they, you know, they don't have to worry about that. Ken Free says this at some point. Well, I know, that's so why I guess they just right, would have taken that shot. Because what, well, because what they are talking about, you know, a little bit with consumerism and that, is that he all of a sudden thought this was all theirs. Well, they're thieves as well. Right. So it didn't really belong to him either. He shouldn't have said they're taking our things. Right. Like, he did start to feel like this was their home, that mall. We saw it first. Right. right. Um, and if, yeah, if only, you know, Flyboy all throughout sometimes bothered me. I mean, there's bits, there's times when I'm like, oh, no, he's, you know, he's back on track again, but... Uh, yeah, well, Flyboy's a nightmare. He, yeah, I mean, he's even more so than, than the woman who at least at a certain point realizes... She's part of the group. She needs to have flying lessons. Mm-hmm. She needs to have shooting lessons. You know, whatever. Right. Um, even more so than her, Flyboy is the one that consistently throughout the movie is causing the problems that are going to make it harder for them right. to continue existing. So longer. had he not fired at them, they but, possibly could have then re- you know taken them all back again after now, they left. Now, okay, it would have been ransacked. It wouldn't have had as much stuff in it. Yeah, but, I don't know if they could have closed off those doors again. But, you know, who knows? Right. Um, but then the other guy, uh, Scott Reidegger, is equally... Um, Roger is equally excitable and... Yeah, he, um, that, the change in him, I guess he was just having a breakdown or something, because he, he became, um, he wasn't as cautious anymore, and right. it was like it was getting to him, yeah. like he was feeling invincible, Right. and of course then he wasn't. Well, this, this, the other thing is, I noticed watching it again this time, how quick they are to do all this stuff, and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, the world's ended, what are you worrying about? Yeah. It's not like Monday, you've got to be at work at 9 right. a.m., so... You know, why not take your time? Why not do it more systematically? Why not be more patient? Why not say, mm-hmm. okay, we'll go shop by shop or, you know, we'll, we'll do it piece by piece. They're very um, quick to, you know, there's even that point where you really think they should all probably have a lie down. Yeah, and even then, Flyboy, you've wanted him to take more of a nap when he right. first got there and he doesn't. And then, you know, Roger and him leap up. And then once Flyboy wakes up, he then runs downstairs and leaves her without the the gun and stuff. I I just guess 
What's incredible about Dawn of the Dead more than any other movie? Uh, no, it's not scary to me anymore, and I'm not sure if it ever was. But um, you can, although the the sequence in the basement with the with the zombie chasing flyboy is pretty uh, uh, tense still. But the um, what's nice about it is I must have seen it, like I say, thirty, forty times at the very least. And every time I watch it, it's different. I'm never bored with it. I'm never not interested in the characters. It's got enough like exciting comic book style moments in it uh, that you look forward to those. But in between those bits, there's enough that as you get older and you watch it and you start experiencing more of the lives that these people are going through anyway, having jobs, having a child, having a family, having whatever, you know, um, the more you see into the characters and the more you kind of understand as well. Plus, there are some really artistic bits that Romero does. Yes, there are some slapstick uh, comic book style action bits, but... You know, that whole sequence where their dinner that they're having goes goes sour. And then they're just sat in bed afterwards. And I said it was like a, a tableau. It was like set up like a still photograph. Yeah. And Romero just pulls back. And then the next morning when you see the sun on the on the uh, pyramids on the top of the, the glass pyramids on top of the mall. That was very picturesque. And the way he films the, the devastation stuff. There was some really nice things that I notice there's always something I notice in it and you it never feels like the same movie I think because there's so much movie there it's it's always yeah I agree yeah and would you say that's your favorite of the three is that yes because okay. I um because I'm with them very tense until they can get the whole mall cleared up and running their way right and I'm just like okay now do this okay now do that like I'm almost wanting to rush them along right. so that they can systematically get it cleared out and locked up and then they can be theirs cool for a very short period of time yeah well unfortunately well, i mean so, they, they get a few months there i mean she goes from being no belly to that's true you know having a belly so they probably have three or four months of maybe even more. but you would go stir crazy and they were kind of yes locked yeah. away yeah you would were. go a bit crazy so then after dawn of the dead we watched the fly david cronenberg's mm-hmm. the fly I saw The Fly 2 before I ever saw The Fly. And had you seen The Fly before today? Oh, yeah, I think once or twice. Right. But, um, the, yeah, I, I unfortunately saw The Fly 2 first. Um, the Fly, I, the, well, the first time I had ever seen it, I loved it, but couldn't believe it. I mean, you wanted uh, Goldblum to come out okay in the end. You know, right. You were hoping he could reverse it somehow or go in reverse on the telepod or whatever. Um right. It's because uh, that's so horrific. How what happens to him? And the first time you've seen it, when he when you're understanding that he's becoming a fly, so less human, um, you know, and more insect like. Ugh, it's, uh, it doesn't fully to me feel like a Cronenberg film. Well, what is it? I don't understand the what bo- a Cronenberg well, the, film. Well, the, the body horror aspect does, but the um, what is he known for? Well, he he we saw Rabbit and we saw um, the Brood. That he did. Rabid? What was that? Rabid was the zombie film where she had that um, penis-like thing under her arm, like vampirical um, injector. That when she was intimate with a guy, she would like stab it in his, and then he would. They would turn and become infected. That was Rabid. That was a very early one he did. The Brood. Oh yeah, the Brood. But you know how those movies have like that undercurrent, that weird Mm -hmm. sort of um, yeah. The fly doesn't tension. It doesn't have that weird tension. Now it has all the body horror. He is known for doing. 
his idea is not that the horror is coming to get you from outside, but the horror is getting you from within. That's his whole oh, thing. So, um, well, that definitely took place in the fly then, right? Except that, but to Goldblum more than anyone, right? And I'm not sure how much I feel or for Brendan, him. Brendan, I'm not sure how I uh, Brundle, Seth Brundle. Brundle. Brundle I, yeah. I, I'm not sure how much I feel for him. Oh, I do. I, he was just a scientist, you know, on the brink of a really cool discovery. I feel for Gina Davis. I'm not sure how much I feel for him. Oh, I feel for her. I feel for everyone, even uh, her boss. You know, like, he turned out to be... He is just unbelievably <laughs> sleazy, though. Yeah, but he's also... I mean, he, he saves her at the end. Sure, no, when he, he sticks enters... by her. I mean, it seems like he actually did care for her. Right. As stalker and sleazy-like as he seemed in the beginning. But when he enters the warehouse in the last bit, you do kind of think, oh, great, we've got to side with this guy as our hero. Like, he's just been doing nothing but right. antagonize our leading lady all the way through. But Brundle, I feel... It's really sad. I, I didn't realize in the last viewings of The Fly that until this time that the reason he did it himself was he was drunk. He wasn't thinking clearly. Right. He was jealous. He thought, well, let me show her. Well... It's weird, uh, you know, the, the the brood, for example, is very um, anti-woman uh, in, in, in the role of the mother because Cronenberg um, at the time was going through a bad divorce and, um, and custody battle. And so he wrote the brood very much as uh, attacking or, or getting back at his ex-wife and, and how, how uh, annoying she was and how ang- angry and upset she made him feel. And then in this... You know, you could say that it isn't till he meets Gina Davis that his life goes down the tubes. Because up until then, yes, he's a shutaway, but he has his own thing going on. You know, he's privately funded. He doesn't have to worry about anything. He's working away at his um, his experiments. Yes, but she's the reason he figures out how to... Sure, right, right. That's what I was about to go on to say. Right. She's um, the one that yeah, also, however, provides to be his muse. Mm-hmm. But I feel like... I, I feel like the story of the fly, because very often with Cronenberg, like Romero, there's something else going on behind it. It's a bit of the story of what happens when you try to mix creativity, or in the, in, in, in this case, the creation behind scientific experiment. Because it's, it's part creation and part... You know, it's part having a muse. You can have a scientific muse, just like you can have a... I know where you're going with this, but it also was just pure chance that there was a fly that flew in. And actually, everything would have been okay no, if no, there wasn't he, a fly. But he wouldn't have gone in and done it himself and been all well, reckless but like that. Had, had he, he not it, been Had there not and, been a fly, he would have been okay in doing So what's the... Okay, but okay. So that's not really... But what's the other say, message of the um, movie? The angst then is because of that, because... Um, it was just by pure chance there was a fly, and that could have happened at any time. So he could have had this great creation, and then no one would have seen that. Oh, by the way, if there's some kind of little bug in there with you, this is going to happen. So, what's the other messages in the movie then? Because there's a whole subplot about abortion, which seems to be a little bit of a focus. Uh, I don't of know the if film. that's a subplot. Um, I, I wouldn't say that was a subplot. I think that was something we were joking about because that issue came up in Donna the No, Dead. no, no, no. I'm saying. If you look at if you look at the fact that um, and in fact at the very end the the fly part of uh, Brundle fly breaks through Brundle and actually Brundle ceases to exist entirely, 
and in other words, this thing has been growing inside him from within. I think the abortion storyline is to add to the fear of that. So, in other words, you've got this idea that, well, oh, Goldblum yeah, is going be... through this, and there's something growing and inside, inside him her. and changing him. Now she's got something she can actually do something about. And but the, she? but the thing that she has to do in order to do something about it is a big taboo subject. And therefore it's a way to kind of tackle the taboo subject without having to necessarily tackle the taboo subject because everyone is on the side of, I don't want a fly human growing inside me. You know what I mean? I think it's also, his experiment is just like when you get too close to your own creation, you don't think uh, carefully enough. Right. You get too excited and too consumed by it. Because all he had to do is wait a couple of weeks and let them test it properly. And have you heard of have you heard of mothers having anxiety about having deformed children and therefore wanting to get rid of them before actually bringing it to term? The anxiousness of pregnancy. I'm sure. I, I mean, I haven't heard of this, but I'm sure there is. But does that understandably exist? Yes. And do you think that's part of what they're talking about as well? I don't know. I think that just added, like you said, the element of. Oh, now there's something possibly horrific or wrong inside of her. It's just I'm, the thing with. I mean, she could have been. Pre- I mean, we know that she's not because of part two, but she could have been gotten pregnant before he t- was genetically mutated. Sure. Because they did, you know, sleep together before that. Right, but it was so, indicated that they had a lot of sex after he. Yeah, but I mean, wouldn't it matter if she was already pregnant? So right. you know, there was a possibility that. It was just a human child. His and what would have been sad, like he was saying, is that could be the only real part of him that survives all this. Right. Which would have been a nice way if that was it. You know that that she did happen to get pregnant that first time. But don't you think he took a science fiction idea from the forties and fifties and tried as much as he could to? Yeah, and I think that's... But isn't that what all science fiction is? No, no. All all good horror and science fiction should really have that underneath it. It's just that I... Especially with Cronenberg films, I try and find all those little things he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how successful a film like The oh, Fly. Oh well, then if you think it. that's what he's trying to do, then maybe he did want us to... Because this time around, I did think, oh, had she not run off with him when he was trying to celebrate and order eggplant and you know, champagne. Right. Um, but, you know, she did it for him. She ran off because she's like, look, I have to right. end, you know, scrape something off my shoe before we can continue on. Right. Uh, she did it for all the best reasons. He just, like... Well, he realized. was naive in relationships. He yeah, would have been shut away and stuff, so... But no, and then, I mean, obviously, like, why, the reason why I wanted to take the conversation... But it shows you that her... Her caring, like, she cared way beyond what most people would. Of course. Deformed and freaking out. No, I completely, like, I know a lot of people reacted when she hugs him and he's just vomited on the donut. Uh, and she hugs him. I know a lot of people reacted because you go, oh. But actually, that was one of the most natural moments in the whole movie, that she would be that yeah. concerned for him that she would want to hold well, him. Well, she was. She was concerned. She's like, this man is dying. I don't know how to help him. Right. No, you totally buy their relationship. I just, I, I didn't want to necessarily just talk about the effects because everyone just talks about the oh. effects. And I think that, I think that while the effects are spectacular, I mean, they're really, really well done, the effects. Um, you know, especially stuff like him crawling on the ceiling and things are very well done. Uh, and, and the makeup and all the rest of it is fantastic. I think that if Cronenberg has a strength at all, it's the other stuff that's going on in his movies. Right. 
you know, he becomes known as the guy who, you know, puts a big weird stomach wound in James Woods or turns um, Jeff Goldblum into a fly or, you know, puts growths on people's necks or babies coming out of people's abdomens and all this sort of stuff. But, but ultimately, he's trying to say something else underneath. Right. I'm just not sure... The more I watch of Cronenberg, I'm just not sure how layered and successful it is. I like it, but I don't know that it's particularly subtle or whatever. Okay. But I don't know. And then lastly, uh, we watched, after that, we watched Wreck 3, which is a culmination for us uh, Halloween uh, moviegoer Yeah, we've group. seen one every year. because yeah, we've gone three years now. We you were... know, it was kind of like... Um... The Evil Dead, in a way, whereas the first one was the most, you know, horrific and scary. Right. Like, where you're like, and you're like, what is going on? Right. And then part two... It's kind of a remake of the first. uh, Yes, but then part three gets a little silly, and it almost feels like a different movie entirely, and filmed differently, just like Army of Darkness was to The Evil Dead. Yeah. And then this one, they do have some shots um, in the film, oh, quite a bit of it, with... That's not through the camera, right? Which is what you know, not. The it's not a strictly a found footage, footage movie, right? No. And now, in order, but to not make, only that, but it was like had more comedy in it, a lot more, and yeah. a chainsaw, <laughs> and a chainsaw. So uh, I was surprised by that. I didn't think they'd go that way. Um, My problem was is that. You know, they told them, they told the Romeo and Juliet story, and they told the 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 you know they had the chainsaw and the gore and whatever. My my, I loved. I mean, I loved it. It was stupid, stupid fun, and there was some really good, gory geek boy stuff of you know a woman who tears off the bottom of her wedding gown to reveal like a sexy red garter, who then picks up a yellow chainsaw and goes carving zombies into. Like that was awesome, but um, but beyond that, I felt like. There were too many times where we were all like, come on, come on, get on with it, stop, yeah. why are you standing looking at each other? And I just thought it could have been a longer, better film. Well, um, I don't know, I don't want to spoil it, but there is a whole group of people that are safe somewhere that you never see what happens to them. Right. And I guess you're just assuming that they're quarantined. Right. Um, but it would have been nice to see what happened to them. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was That was fun, and they... I feel like they forgot that they were hid out somewhere. But, um, I did like it. I mean, the first one is definitely the best. Uh, and I don't think you have to see the other two. No, you don't. Because the first one really says it all. And and you can see the third one without seeing the first one. And it's almost like the second one kind of ruins the first one, because I feel like they... I don't know if they always set out to do what they did with the second one. Was this a trilogy to begin with? No. Okay. Because I feel like the first one's really complete. And I liked I liked what it was and all well, that. Well, the first one presents a mystery of the top floor apartment at the end of it. It yeah, presents like the mystery. That, but it's kind of eerie. It doesn't really answer it, though. But then with the second one, they try to answer it. But, yeah, I'd say they answered it. But I didn't exactly like their answer. No. And then, um... And it kind of ruins the first one, in a way. A little bit. Yeah. So I feel like... I mean, the third one... The third one had a bunch of ideas, but none of them were sought... None of them were seen through particularly satisfyingly. Right. Like, and, and what I felt was, just as you were getting something satisfying, it was over very quickly. Yes. So in other words... Even her chainsaw bit. Right. In other words, 
the wedding video setup was a really good idea, right? right. If you're going to have a situation where cameras are on all the time, a wedding video is perfect. Uh, especially like one of these multi-camera big affairs. Okay. That was a good idea. They ditched that. The image of uh, them in the night's costume going out into the fray oh, to whatever yeah. was a really nice idea, never really used, and he just kept ditching his night uniform every five minutes. Yeah. And then the idea of her with the chainsaw and whatever, which was sort of a great idea... Right, because she's being proactive. The moment she saw him again, she drops the fucking chainsaw and it's just all over. And you get like, you get two or three really good bits where I'm like, yeah, and then, and then it's it's over. And look, they gave me enough fanboy moments that I would watch this one again and have a laugh, but it it had none of the substance or those scares of the first one. No, the first one was really good. I really enjoyed the first one. I might watch Quarantine, the American version of all mm. these, um, just because I, you know, can never get enough of zombie type films. Right. Um, Although technically this is a demon possession movie. Yeah, but you know, it's just. Like oh yeah, they're Resident zombies. They're very clearly like zombies. I consider them zombies. In that. Sure. Um, yeah. So the but no, it was enjoyable. I liked all four films. I guess I would say that Dawn of the Dead out of the four was my favorite. Right. And then um, House of Wax. Well, House of Wax was, just a rundown then, House of Wax was surprising to me. Um, it was surprising how good it was and how well done it was. Right. Uh, and you almost got to know every single character, no matter how minor their part was. Right. No, I thought it was very... It, what it does... What it does... And you almost like every character. Yeah. That, that was the strangest part about that film, now that I'm thinking about it, is even the so-called madmen. Oh, okay, the only one person I didn't like... Was the guy, was the guy in the who was out for himself partner. completely. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. He, he was the only one, but everyone else I actually liked. And, you know, you kind of were like, oh... Okay, you understood no. him wanting his money back, but you, that in no way justified what he did. No, not, I, it almost seemed like a turn of character, too, because he's right. being reasonable, and all of a sudden, okay, I will start a fire... You will be killed, and I will collect money. Well, what the House of Wax taught me, like a lot, when you go see these old movies, um, is that far everyone thinks, I think, that modern horror began, you know, either with Psycho or even later in the, in the late seventies with the video boom, uh, and everyone thinks that movies now are more edgy and dark and gritty and hard hitting, and that movies back in the forties and fifties were light fluffy, you know, overly censored, you know, uh, uh, overly family friendly. And that nothing in the 40s or 50s could be hard, gritty, dark, different or whatever. And what, what watching movies like House of Wax and, and multiple movies uh, of that era shows you that actually we're far more uh, censored now. And that the ideas and the things that they were willing to do and show was so much more inventive and exciting, it seems. Yes, I agree. Um, but Dawn of the Dead is the classic of the four of them, though. Dawn of the Dead really stands out because it's just so uh, endlessly inventive, interesting, and well-drawn. Uh, the Fly, I love the effects in it, and I love Goldblum in it. I mean, Goldblum's amazing in it. You know, as someone asked halfway through, did he win an Oscar for this? And you can understand why, because he's amazing in it. Right. 
But the film itself doesn't grab me. The film itself doesn't excite me. Um, it did the first time I watched the it. Only Cronen- the first time I watched it, I was really, really involved in it. Right. Um, but after that, I guess after you realize there's no hope for him. Okay, the second or third time you've seen it, I think you're less involved. Right. Than, because you already know how it ends. And you're more, I guess you are more looking at it in different ways. Um, which is more, I'm more focused on the Gina Davis character. Sure. You know, in her journey. No, everyone's great in it. I just think that, um, and I like it and everything, but it's not, it's still not a patch on. But like, having seen a lot of Cronenberg recently, I completely understand why Videodrome is the one that keeps being brought up time and time again. Videodrome is like his Brazil. It's like... Well, he, I feel like he's no Carpenter. Carpenter, oh, he's a completely different beast. He's a completely different beast. I can see Cron- his films over and over again. And right. same with Romero. Whereas Cronenberg, I don't think I have to really see any of his again. I but don't think I'd watch The Brood again. Cronenberg doesn't have... What Romero and Carpenter both have, and both openly admit that they have, a influences from 50s B-movies and... Uh, EC Comics and things like that. They both have, at their core, a fun, interesting um, B-movie and comic book sensibility, even in their most serious films. Cronenberg comes at movies in a completely different way. He happens to do a lot of things that now have become cultish B-movie staples. Lots of makeup, lots of effects, lots of weird ideas, surreal stuff and whatever. But he is far more a... An ideas guy. He's far more a Gilliam, like a Terry Gilliam, than he is like a Carpenter or a Romero. They're completely different styles. Right. I think I go for the ones where you can see him a hundred times. Right. That's what I prefer. Right. And I I like. There are some Cronenberg that I really really like and could could happily sit down and watch again. And there are others that just for me I can't fully get into. The Fly falls somewhere in between the two. The Fly I can watch. The Fly I could watch a million times, but I'm not getting anything out of it. Other than, here's the gooey bit where he squeezes his fingernail on the right. on the uh, mirror. Or here's the bit where he crawls up onto the ceiling. Or here's the bit where his jaw comes off. Like it, it's, I like, don't think I've seen any other Cronenberg besides those three we mentioned. The three we watched the last three years up at Laurel's? I don't think I've watched any other ones. Okay. You would have a hard time with... A video drone just because I think you would have difficulty with the, the the surreal way he's presenting the ideas just because I know that you have you right. don't no, like that. I feel yeah, I think um I love I it. Think he, but... I think he like I said, I think um I don't think it's bad. Um I I do like the fly. But I don't think he'd ever be a favorite director of mine. Right. Or not one that I could really get into. As compared to the mentioned. The Fly, I mean, I haven't seen Naked Lunch in a long time, but the the Fly so far out of the uh, seven Cronenberg movies that I've seen and or covered on the shows, um, uh, the Fly is, I think, at fourth. So it'd be Videodrome and then Rabbit and the Brood would be next. I don't know which one would be next. It would change constantly. The Fly fourth. Uh, Dead Ringer's fifth and Crash sixth. Um, so that's how we do it. And then Wreck three, 
you know, I would watch it once. It's a good fun. I mean, I would watch it more times, but listeners, I would watch. I would watch it once. Uh, I think it's a good fun, geeky movie that tries in some weird way to say something about the god and devil, but never really does. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, and none of its ideas go anywhere. Don't expect it to go anywhere. It begins and it ends and you're none the wiser or none the more caring. You don't care anymore at the end than you do at the beginning. Um, but it's a good throwaway, fun, Well, it with us, fan the people film. we were watching it with, it was a great way to end the night. Because we were all, by the end of it, screaming at the TV for the characters to do something. Right. And, uh, and it was just fun to make little jokes throughout. It was one of those, like I said... Uh, Kind of a comedy horror. Yeah. Um, right, so... And great effects. I mean, the effects in Wreck were really good. Right. I agree. Really good. Um, in fact, it was kind of an effects-heavy day, if you think about it. House of Wax had quite See, a... See, I never pay attention to that. You always will say, oh, that movie was really violent. I don't really notice that stuff. Right. But you're right, I guess it was... Um, Okay, I noticed in The Fly, but only because those bits were so gross. And not only that, we watched them chronologically. It was almost like effects through the ages. Now that I think about it, the four films work really well like that. Oh, that's true. Because Dawn of the Dead is obviously known as sort of one of Savini's earliest effects showcases. I love Savini. I like him from Dust Till Dawn. That's Sex Machine? Yeah. Yeah. He's good fun. Um, I like Savini in everything, really. Yeah, me too. He, he gets away, doesn't... Him. No, he dies, No, he? he dies. He gets yeah. thrown off the top of the second level of the... Uh, which was a stunt he did himself over into some cardboard boxes and ma- mattresses that were piled up. Because he gets a stuntman credit on that movie as well. Oh, cool. Yep. No, a good day of, uh, good day well, of films. thank you very much for our rundown of day one. We'll have a similar rundown tomorrow. All right. And that will bookend our podcast for this week. And... Thank you, Fiona. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yes, keep listening at the end of the show to hear our rundown of day two of our Halloween horror movie marathon. Good evening, folks. Do you enjoy action and adventure? Romance and comedy? How about long strolls on the beach and a fine champagne by moonlight? Do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain? Or would you rather listen to some in-depth conversation about film where many timely and poignant observations and witticisms are made? Mo here from the Drunk on VHS podcast. And if you like any of those things, then I have some bad news for you. Drunk on VHS has none of these. But you should listen anyway. Because I asked him nicely and said, please, await Please tune in every Wednesday for new episodes exclusively at CouchKidding.com. Bring the family. Bring your friends. Excuse me, what are you doing? Are you looking for porn again? No. Well, what is that I see? It's not porn. It's the badassboobsandbodycounts.com website. I happen to be looking at the reviews in the boobs section of the site. They have a section of the site dedicated to boobs? Yes, they do. They cover exploitation films in the boobs category, action films in the badass category, and horror in the body counts category. What's that review you're reading now? This is Andy Sidaris's Malibu Express. See at the bottom of the review there? They list how many boobs appear in the film. In this case, it's 
it's 22 pairs. This is definitely a film I want to see. You mean just for boobs? Uh, yeah, just for boobs. What's that other option, BBNBC Podcast? That's the great thing about the site. If you're not into reading the reviews, you can listen to them via the web on your mobile device through iTunes and even Stitcher Smart Radio. And they cover the same types of films, lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cinema. So yeah, to answer your question, I wasn't cruising porn. That's too bad. What's too bad? That you weren't cruising for porn. Uh, why? Because I was feeling kind of horny. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Get back here. Hey, get back here. Hi, I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecuing oxen and roasting boar for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid Commentaries. Ain't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gun while looking at a bat. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. But usually, you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kick-Ass. You can find us on our main page, which is dractionkickass.blogspot.com. You can also find us on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. Hey, where's that baby mama at? I gotta tell you somebody. Hello, I'm Mugumbo, and I am a potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the Traumatic Cinematic Show. What is the difference, you ask? The Traumatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it. Nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. So when you are sitting around nude, pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers, check out TraumaticCinematic.com, because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on TraumaticCinematic.Podomatic.com. I'm on the internet. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of the After Movie Diner here in Hodotober. And on this week's show, I'm happy, honoured, and extremely thankful, because he's filling in at the last minute, to welcome back to our little show, the master of movies, the baron of blogging and video blogging over at And You Thought It Was Safe, comic book specialist for us here at the diner, Twitter royalty, new regular co-host of the Traumatic Cinematic Podcast, and owner, officially, of Oregon's Greatest Hair. It's the wonderful and splendid David DeMoss. Good evening, sir. And good evening to you, John. Thank you so much. That was an awesome intro, as <laughs> usual. <laughs> well, I wanted to get in all your accomplishments. That's, that's, that, was the, that was the idea, because you have so many to list, sir. Oh, you know, well, we try to keep busy. Yes, and, I mean, yeah. you must be incredibly yeah, you, busy. You're just you're, lucky you caught me when you did. Because you're writing blogs, you're putting video blogs up, you're, you're now co-hosting the Traumatic Cinematic Show. Uh, it must be a busy entertainment week for you now, sir. Oh, heck with that. I just got back from the dentist. So I'll tell your listeners right now. So <laughs> I was uh, basically curled up in my office chair in pain. And this is pretty much the perfect distraction from that. Better than <laughs> any painkiller that, yeah, I could possibly get. Talk about horror movies. I love horror movies. 
Especially so, when you feel like yeah. you've just been living in one for the last hour or whenever you've been in the pretty dentist. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much. Some kind of weird Guillermo del Toro, Lloyd Kaufman co-production. Nice, very nice. Yeah, when we were talking before the show, I think we were we were imagining the uh, skinny fingered gentleman from Pan's Labyrinth being mixed with some sort of mad piercing person from uh, <laughs> Takashi Miike's Ichi. Ichi the Killer. That's it. Yeah. Um, so yes, that's pretty much my experience every time I go to the dentist as well. And being British, I have to go every week. <laughs> and it's pretty much everyone's experience, I think. That's why uh, evil doctors uh, just keep coming back. You know, you can't kill them. They're like roaches. <laughs> Do- Dr. Giggles uh, or, or anything played by Udo Kier. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Um, oh, God. He is just the the man's... The man's creepy eyes. I mean, he can be wearing a suit in the middle of the day and still be the creepiest person in the room. Yes. Um, in fact, he was in in Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. He was um, the he was Loomis's boss, and when he just popped in there, I was like, "God damn, you're creepy, Udo Kier." Of course, now you're talking about a film that I flatly refuse to ever see. So, <laughs> Well, see, and that's the thing. That's why it is stuffed full of cameos from horror movie icons. Um, yeah. It's not just Malcolm McDowell in that movie, but like Udo Kier's in that movie. A bunch of other people who should have known better are in that movie. <laughs> I mean, Clint, uh, I'm pretty sure Clint Howard um, is in that movie. Uh, for no reason. Danny Trejo's in that movie uh, to fill out the body count. Um, Brad Dourif's in that movie as the sheriff. You know, I mean, there's just uh, he just got everyone he ever liked in a movie and he put them all together, regardless of whether they were right for the role or, you know, just good for the tone or anything. And it looks like he was doing that again for Lords of Salem. Except that I was recently informed, and look, I don't know if she's made it public announcement now, because she private messaged me on uh, Twitter. Such is my life now that I get private messaged by Barbara Crampton. But Barbara (sighs) Crampton... But Barbara Crampton was meant to be in Lords of Salem, filmed a role for Lords of Salem, because like you say, Zombie fills his films up with, you know, oh, this is someone I watched on, you know, the movie screen in the 80s. It's, It's Tarantino casting. Right, exactly. Uh, it was meant to cast, so I was like, well, I guess as it's her return basically to the big screen, um, I, I better go see my first proper Rob Zombie film, which would be Lords of Salem. And uh, and then I found out from her that he's actually edited her, edited her out. So my, my <laughs> suspicions that oh. Rob Zombie is a big dick face <laughs> have been confirmed. See? The, yeah. Well, I could have told you that just yeah. from his movies. But see? <laughs> oh, See, that, that's just a new low of, of dick face a tree. I yes. mean, why do you get Barbara Crampton in the first place if you're going to edit her out of your film? Yes. But the good news is, is that because I, I, the reason why she told me is I wrote to her when I got the, the new Fangoria cover on which she's, she is the scream queen on, that, on the Halloween uh, uh, issue this week or this, this month, rather, um, interviewing Stuart Gordon. And I said, oh, you know, I got your, your magazine through and whatever. I can't. I love it because I've got a whole year of Crampton because we're going to have Lords of Salem. We've got the evil clergyman coming out. And then next year she's in Your Next, which will be her next big horror movie that's coming out next year. Um, that just got distribution, I think, through Lionsgate. 
And uh, she, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and except they pushed it back a year. They should have brought it out this year, but they Ooh. didn't. They, they, yeah, exactly. yeah, fuck you, Lionsgate. Well, they didn't want to coincide. They've got another horror title coming out this year, and they didn't want to like have two on the books or something like that. So I don't know. Um, so they wanted so basically they were what you're saying is they were allergic to money. Yes, that's basically they just <laughs> declared themselves allergic to money. Okay, well, that's, we, that's fine, Lionsgate. You you go with that. We yeah. have to make way for all the horror remakes that they're going to release this year and next year. <laughs> or yeah, um, God forbid we have an actual you know original independent horror movie on the big fucking screen in October. Oh no, they'll just they'll just buy the rights to them and and sit on them for like uh, four or five years. Yeah, or right. Something. But so I said, well, you know, uh, at least we've got these two things to hold us off until you're next, which I'm actually genuinely excited about. And uh, she was like, oh, actually, um, you know, I've been edited out of uh, Rob Zombie told me the other day I've been edited out of uh, Lords of Salem. So I was like, I didn't say this to her, but half of me was like, no, how do you do that to my beloved Crampton? And the other half of me was like, yes, I don't have to go see that piece of shit film. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, because the, jo- because the joke uh, of all of these is that they are really just cameos. So all of the good actors that you actually uh, like and would have presumably uh, come to see if they were at all in the publicity material, yeah. which of course they aren't, because they're just walk-on parts, but... And so they're just walk-on parts, and you're stuck usually with 90 minutes to two hours of Rob Zombie's characters, who are universally awful people. (laughs) Right, exactly. But I thought that would nicely segue into something that you've seen recently. I've not seen the film yet, but I got my copy today through uh, through from Full Moon uh, uh, Features. Uh, You saw, or recently had the pleasure to see, uh, The Evil Clergyman, um, the 30-minute Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs starring section of... Uh, remind me what the full uh, film was going to be called? The It was going to be called Pulse Pounders. That's it, the anthology movie, right. It was, yes, it was an anthology of, um, well, really, of sequels from Charles Band's uh, Empire Pictures. And unfortunately, uh, Charles Band's Empire Pictures went belly up, and Pulse Pounders was caught in the ensuing legal melu, as these things tend to be. And so it got itself lost at some point. The original 35mm print is still completely unaccounted for, but someone found a VHS copy uh, somewhere. And so they've been painstakingly cleaning that up as best they can for the last year, as far as I know. And so we get the evil clergyman this year, and we are apparently going to get what is now annoyingly called uh, Transfers 1.5 next year. That That's going to be exciting. There is 60 it- seconds of footage of Transfers on the clergyman disc that I haven't seen yet, but I think I'm probably going to watch that first. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I probably would. I probably would too. Well, because they're not actually they're not actually showing that footage. I think until like August of next year or something. Um, no, they didn't. They didn't show. They didn't show a thing. We just got a title card at the end of the movie. You know, coming next year, transfers one point five. Um, and I don't. I didn't. I don't remember seeing any word for. Um, whatever the third part of Pulse Pounders was meant to be, because I didn't see the whatever its prequel or its predecessor. Yeah, yeah it was but... going to be the Dungeon Master was the ah, uh, the third one. Okay, 
the Dungeon Master. So it was a 1988 film directed by Charles Band. But yeah, Trance is 1.5, which, okay, that's a shitty title, but... You know, if that's where it comes in the the trance series, then that's that's where it needs to be. Really. That's where I, I understand. Yeah, and I understand completely. It just reminds me of that sh- uh, shitty re-release of the first X Men movie that they put out right before they put out X Two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did see that. I never picked it up, but I I, I did see. No, that on the I did. I didn't. I wouldn't even shoplift it. The damn thing. <laughs> I was just opposed to it on a moral principle. I was yes. like. Fuck you, Fox. Though at that point I was already fu- like fuck you, Fox. But you it's, know, it's, this just that just reinforced it for me. It's funny how we as geeks, if if I don't know, uh, the the Simon Pegg clan, for example, did I think two editions of Hot Fuzz. They did like a a two disc edition. I think there was even probably a one disc vanilla edition. But they did uh, uh, the proper two disc special edition. And then they did in in the states only a three disc Uber. Hot Fuzz Special Super Edition. Super Ultra Mega Awesome right. Special Edition of Hot Fuzz. Yeah. And then, For those uh, of you who were dumb enough to waste your money on it the first time yeah. you, it came out. Well, I, I actually have the the best excuse because I came to the States without any of my DVDs. Right. And that was and you one have that to, I, Yeah, you had to navigate the whole region switch thing, which right. is always a pain in the ass for everyone. Who but I've since that. had my region two shipped over because I do have a multi-region player here. But in the sort of, it was like a year, year and a half without my films, a lot of the films that I was really into at the time, I went and bought up again. So that gave me the excuse to buy the Hot Fuzz triple disc edition, not as a double dip, because essentially it was my first purchase on these shores of Hot Fuzz. So that that gave me the excuse to pick it up. But no, the reason I bring that up, it's interesting how geeks will happily do double dip on, you know, Evil Dead franchise to Phantasm (laughs) franchise. Triple dipping. (laughs) Triple, well, yeah, quadruple. In fact, I think I had, I have to go back to all the VHSs I collected of Evil Dead 1 as well, because there were multiple covers and multiple versions released as the, as the, um, in the UK, the rights changed hands as to who could yeah, distribute it. and as various and sundry, you know, uh, recuts of the film were released to you, you had to right. piece, you could have pieced this thing together yourself over like a 20-year period I just think from I all worked, the versions you had. Yeah, I think I worked out that I had nine, if I was going to include the VHS copies, I had, I had, now I have more now because I've subsequently picked up the 30th anniversary edition and the Blu-ray, or the 25th anniversary edition and, and the Blu-ray. But I had, I think, at one point, 10 different versions. <laughs> so, yes. Now, see, that is that is Evil Dead fandom right. right there. That puts mine to shame. Which is why, when they're remaking it, and I'm not going to go over the remake, because really I've been, I've, I've tired myself out online talking about the Evil Dead fucking remake. Because they released footage this week of the Evil Dead remake. Oh, uh, they did? Okay. The, well, the, if I need my blood pressure raised, I oh can God. go look at that. Oh, don't even bother. I mean, it, it, they, they did it in the New York Comic Con. Someone camcorded it, and they've put it up on, like, YouTube and uh, Daily Motion. A bunch of other places have got it now. And it, it, I think that's even persuaded them. I don't know because I haven't double-checked, but I think they've even been persuaded now to actually release it just officially now, uh, now that the Comic Con is over. But, uh, yeah, they, they did the first... They call it a teaser trailer, but it's, I mean, it's trailer length. I think it's about two minutes long. Um, and obviously they released the first image from the Evil Dead remake. And what uh, the, the one comment I would make on it, 
uh, because every, everyone has been asking me this. It's funny, the moment they released the footage, I got an inundated with <laughs> a tweet. Oh, and you emails. poor man. Oh, Jesus, you poor man. Have you man. seen I'm the sorry. Evil Dead trailer and stuff? Of course you did. Yes. That's what, yes, because that's what we do now. We have to parse out every little crumb of information that we that we get that we are dr- that is dribbled out to us into yeah. the ugh, boy. and, and yeah. so I, I saw it and well I mean it didn't really I mean yes it angered me because it's an Evil Dead remake but yeah. <laughs> and and it it wouldn't fucking matter but what it what what it had in it but it was an Evil Dead remake but what they've basically done is they've they've confirmed what i've always said i always said that the evil dead remaking the evil dead is absolutely pointless because it's not the plot or necessarily what happens in the evil dead that is what's good about it it's the three people who made it that's what was good about it in fact you could probably boil down the first evil dead to the fact that it was sam fucking raimi that's pretty much what i boil it down to and it was because you know bruce was very amateur at the time and obviously tapper is a producer we don't really know exactly what he did other than obviously help to coordinate things and the fact that they went thousands of dollars kept, over budget yeah, he, he kept Raimi and he kept Raimi and Bruce from uh just you know three stooging it up uh, right. the whole damn time you know he he was the third he was the mo that's that's always right. what i've understood to be robert tabbert's uh you know job sure. in in most of these things he's the guy who says no dudes we got to we got to do something about this but at we the could... same time he clearly didn't do his job as it it did go over budget but uh... that's true <laughs> but um... well you know there were some yeah well the things that Raimi wanted to do weren't exactly fucking cheap right exactly and you know <laughs> and he, they he, shouldn't have been that he, that's that's also part of but that's also part of the why it's pointless to remake the evil dead because the the evil dead is a monument to uh what and part of its appeal is as a monument to what you can do uh, as, you know, as cheaply and efficiently as possible. Well, Even it's, if it's, the whole thing winds up spiraling out of your control, you can still come out ahead. Of course. And and the, the, the film The Evil Dead is as much based on the story behind the making of as and now, especially with all the issues of the DVD and the books and stuff. It's as much the story of like three guys and a group of other friends who, you know, you name an independent film, and I mean a, like a truly independent film, where one of the cast members and almost everyone behind the scenes has had an actually decent official career in Hollywood, as successful as Sam Raimi, successful as Rob Tabbert, successful as Bruce Campbell's, hell, even fucking Josh Becker, Scott Spiegel, you name it, behind the scenes yes. they've all had careers. You can't name it because... You know, you can, people can say what the fuck they like about the Blair Witch. I, I fucking shit the Blair Witch. Fuck that movie. But <laughs> the uh, Evil Dead. We might is, have some difficulty there, but keep yeah, going. Yeah, right. Going. The Evil <laughs> The Evil Dead is one of the most, uh, if not the most, successful independent movie horror movie, independent horror movie on an artistic level, on on a on a creative level, not necessarily financially. Although it did make forty times its budget back. Um, now, eventually, but on an, yes, but on an, on a pure movie making level, it's an actual right. horror movie, right? And it is one of the yeah, out of one of the simplest, uh, most dunderheaded you know uh, con- setups you could possibly create. You you give yourself, you give the world um, the you know one of the most one of its most influential films of the last 
30 years. I mean, yeah. there is not a uh, horror movie made these days that does not owe something to the Evil Dead. Right. And um, it's, and it's referenced in the same breath as movies that inspired them. It's mentioned in the same breath as Night of the Living Dead. It's mentioned in the same breath as uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's mentioned in the same breath of movies that inspired the filmmakers who made that movie. And, and you know, that that's what's so good about it. Remaking it is so utterly, utterly redundant because of what that first movie symbolizes. Not about the plot, not about five people who happen to be very stupid, find a book, play, <laughs> play, play the tape, wander out into the woods. I mean, everything they do in that movie is fucking stupid. But it's not about that. So when they said they were going to remake it, they, there was a lot of talk about... This is just another story. This is going to be five different kids. It's not the kids. It's, we're not remaking the five, five kids from the first one. It's going to be five different kids go to a different cabin who happen to find the Book of the Dead in the basement and hell, you know, ensues after that. Uh, and one of the kids is going to be coming down off heroin. This was like the story. And I was like, well, first of all, that just sounds fucking pointless. But at least if you're going to do the remake, then, yeah, tell a different story. That that I'll go with, fine, tell a different story. This at least means you could kind of include it as, much like the Friday the 13th remake. You, I didn't like it, I thought it was a piece of shit, but at least yeah. it wasn't trying to plaster over what already existed. It oh, could... but that's bullcrap, though. Friday the 13th remake is a remake of Friday the 13th's 1 through 3. It is the condensed Cliff Notes version of three movies that the first, already the first, exist and the, that everyone who could potentially be interested in a Friday the 13th remake has already fucking seen. The first and 10 or to, 15 minutes, yes. After to, that, it tells another story. And to Evil... well, But to the Evil Dead remake, I would then say, great, you've just uh, described Cabin in the Woods. Oh, no, completely. No, no, no. Yeah, or you've described cabin fever, whatever you want to call or it. Or you've right? described, it, ca right. yes, you've described it, ca cabin fever which, or um, the, yeah, any of the, pick something. Got right. It. Uh, which, wrong, the Wrong Turn series. How right. about that one? Yeah, completely. <laughs> no, no, and, and you're 100% you're right on that, on that matter. Zombie, so, yeah, talk about zombie redneck torture family. Right, exactly. So I, I was like, it's redundant anyway, but if they're going to do it, well, at least it's one that I can kind of look as as maybe a, you know, a, a 3.5, you know, Evil Dead 3.5 or whatever, or Evil Dead 4, whatever you want to call it. I could look at it as 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 a parallel to the canon or maybe part of the canon rather than a strict out-and-out -out remake. Then they released the first image, which is basically a shitty, sore, hostile-looking fucking version of, you know, uh, well, the, the possessed girl in the cellar in the first one, mm -hmm. Ellen Sandweiss. Uh, they've, and it's basically like an updated almost CGI looking like everything in that greeny brown hue wash, you know, that, that just makes everything kind of blurry and shitty that they make every fucking horror movie in now. Of course. Because um, there's no such thing as cinematographers anymore because uh, people just go, oh, yeah, we'll fix that in post. And what they mean is they cover everything so it looks like a Balrog wiped its ass on it. Um, yes, we can put a green <laughs> filter over it because people don't like green. Yeah, it right. makes them think bad thoughts. <laughs> so they released that image and I was like, uh-oh. Then they released the trailer and it was just, I was watching it. I was like, oh, oh, no. No, you didn't. Oh, yes. Oh, fuck. And it's all the horror beats from the first and second film 
redone. Of course it is. pretty because, people uh, and Because by the same people. token, the, the Evil Dead's very notoriety is exactly why they're remaking it. It's why they remade The Thing last year to right. no effect whatsoever and to no good purpose. Yeah. Um, to so much, uh, so little of a purpose, in fact, that they realized there was no purpose uh, halfway through. And they just uh, or turned it into a prequel. Or yeah. maybe the reverse happened. We don't really know. We don't maybe know. it was a prequel first. And they decided, fuck it, we'll just do a remake. Uh, or we'll call it a remake so that everyone will be lured in. Because, no, you know, who wants prequels anymore? But that was um, also one of the most redundant things because the John Carpenter... And I, I actually, in the lead-up to that movie coming out, watched the thing again. And, you know, because I normally think of, like, all the beats at the American camp, in mm-hmm. the John Carpenter one. And I was watching it again and I was like, oh, my God, the prequel's going to be even more redundant than I already thought it was. He shows so much of, of the what Norwegian camp, in the, Norwegian the entire camp. yes, that's the big you know hook of the first act is them uh, plow, you know plowing through this frosty remains of what happened over there, and yeah, so of course any re- any prequel to that would be nothing but redundant and would have to suffer from incredible amounts of prequelitis, right. just well, we know story how points ends. that occur for no good reason. Yeah. except to set up something in a movie everyone's already seen. Yeah, we know who dies because we see their corpses in the in the Carpenter movie. We know how it ends because we've seen the fucking beginning of the John Carpenter movie. There, there is literally no suspense to be drawn from doing a prequel to the thing. I mean, and, and you know, and the same can be said for The Evil Dead. At the end of the day, everyone at the end of the movie has got to be fucking dead. I mean, that's like... <laughs> There's no, there's no point. There I don't care that. if she's coming off heroin. It doesn't matter. Once you unleash the demons from the Book of the Dead, every single person in that cabin is fucked. And I don't care how strong the leading lady is, and I don't care how much fake blood they used, and I don't care how Bruce Campbell goes around to all the Comic-Cons saying how wonderful it's going to be. I, I do not fucking care. You're lying to me, you fucking asshole. Yes, they're all lying. <laughs> of course they are. They're they're in the public relations industry. But I'm going to be what talking. They are meant to do. They are their job is to go out and lie to our faces. Yes, uh, indeed. About yes, we made this, and it's the greatest fucking thing since sliced bread. Well, we know that's not true. But I have uh, lots more in my uh, uh, ammunition basket about this remake. But I'm going to uh, be talking remakes with uh, Mr. Moseph Porn. Uh, on the We Came From The Basement show soon in a new segment that's tentatively called Johnny and the Mo. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be there with bells on because that is going to rock uh, my face off. Uh, well, we hope so. We hope so. But yes, though, but there's a lot to do with the Evil Dead remake and, and, and the Thing remake and stuff like that. It's just um, depressing, let's say. It really is. So now that I've been your therapist, I was going to say, I thought I was supposed to be talking about horror movies yes, <laughs> that well, I were, actually liked. Yes, you are. But let's, well, tell me about the Evil Clergyman screening. Just tell me about that experience. I will I will say it was a grand one. I mean, after I've been watching Charles Band movies since I was a kid, really, but they were all uh, released through straight to video through Full Moon. I can say with all honesty, this would be the, my first Charles Band theatrical experience, and it was awesome in a way that I cannot act adequately describe without spoiling everything. Okay. Um, were but any yes. of the were any of the cast there? 
Uh, no, okay. this was just a uh, screening of the film itself because it was part of a uh, film festival that the H.P. Lovecraft Society in my town decided to put on uh, this October. They usually do the Lovecraft Film Festival in March. Right. And so this year they did that and they did this, which was uh, a zo- which was a Zombies versus Lovecraft uh, two-night special, right, of mostly independent shorts. And so you'd get a block of shorts, then a break, then another block, and then uh, usually the main feature. Cool. Um, though HP, the H.P. Lovecraft night, we had two because um, there's a new adaption of The Thing on the Doorstep out. If any of you Lovecraft uh, completionists want to go search for that. And it was, eh, it was pretty good. It, you know, it had most of the problems that long-form Lovecraft adaptions have, what with you know, padding and, uh, and self-reflexiveness because, you know, they still tried to keep the same uh, voiceover th- you know, intact and the right. same narration uh, intact from the... Uh, but set it in a modern context, which is kind of... That takes a little getting used to. But right. for, for all of that, and it's not, not, um, and it's, it's not a silent film, right? So it's in color, digitally shot. Uh, but for all of that, it was, you know, fairly good adaption. Excellent. And then we had uh, Evil Clergyman, which is based on a letter that Lovecraft wrote to a friend about a dream he had. And it has all, uh, it has every problem of, of Lovecraftian adaption, uh, but I don't care because it also has Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton uh, in a nighty. Oh, so. and David Gale, and David Warner, and David Warner. Yes, David Warner pops up um, with yeah, as, uh, as David Warner should in everything. <laughs> playing yes, um, also playing a playing a priest, playing a clergyman. It was not say. lost on me when, and I know that we won't delve into this series because I know your feelings on the subject. But it was not lost on me when David Warner showed up in Scream Two as Sydney's um, uh, drama teacher. <laughs> yes, yes, he was. He was. Um, yeah, he was staging. Were they staging Oedipus? Yes, I think they were. And that was there was some attempt to tie that in with like Sydney knowing her fate, but it was all a bit. <laughs> Bullshit. It was all a bit and and ill thought out. Well, in that case, they had to they they had their script leak on the internet, so yeah. they had to like scramble to um, junk the ending of their new movie and start afresh. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. A, a Kevin Williamson script badly thought out? No. No. Surely yeah, not. you did, never would have thought of that. Yeah. Right. But from <laughs> from movies that I know that you're not particularly fond of to. The subject in hand, which is a little bit of a sort of interview of Mr. DeMoss and seeing what he is into when it comes to horror movies. So first of all, sir, uh, why don't you tell us what's sort of the first horror movie you remember seeing? Now, that is a very good question. The best uh, answer that I could give you, and this would bring up interesting topics of what could you know, what you would consider a horror movie sure. would be uh, the 1990 Ron Underwood film Tremors. Okay. Yes. Technically and, a monster movie, but that's, that's well within the realms of Halloween, I think. And if, it, yeah, and if anybody who doesn't, anybody who doesn't know, Tremors uh, concerns the story of an isolated small town in fuck off nowhere, New Mexico, 
that uh, finds itself under attack from giant prehistoric worm monsters. And uh, the the thing I remember most is the scene where um, Kevin Bacon uh, is trying to find old Fred, you know, this, this old drifter. He's got a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, a little patch of garden, and he's walking, Kevin Bacon's walking through the garden. He finds old Fred's hat, he picks it up, and there's a severed head uh, underneath it. And and in this little depression in the ground, because old Fred's been sucked down and uh, decapitated. Yeah. And, you know, just the head and the hat standing, you know, just... and. And just the expression on this fake head um, was <laughs> did, whoever whoever molded that did a really great job. And it's it's very it's a very short shot. It's not even you know it's not lingering. Um, and and because Tremors isn't really it's kind of gory, but most of the gore is non-human. Yes. So, um, but but at the same time it doesn't matter because that it all f- works for the story itself and and that little i remember that little moment very clearly um so yes there would be that it'd be a toss up between that and uh david cronenberg's fly which you've previously discussed quite well on another podcast well ev- everyone in fact we were talking about it just recently on the cronenberg episode ev- everyone of our generation's first experience seems to have been the fly somewhere along the line it seems to have crept into the subconscious of our, of our generation well <laughs> quite for, well. yeah and well for me i got it i got it early because um you talk about monster movies you talk about the original fly um but eh. You know that that was certainly a horror movie for its day, but it was plainly a horror movie for 1955. Right, um, which doesn't that star the guy who would go on to become Felix Leiter? It, one of them, yes. Yes. Um, well, the one, one that of, everyone thinks of as Felix Leiter, even though he only ever played the role twice. Twice. Well, hey, he was two more, twice as one more than anybody else. Sure, man. David Henderson. Shit. Um, yeah. Um, yes. And and so I saw I saw original Fly at some point far earlier. Yes, and um, was had the good fortune to uh, live near a town with a video store where the horror section and the cartoons were facing each other. <laughs> That's well planned. <laughs> it really was. Uh, the horror section occupied this entire back wall, and you know, I'm you're a little kid, right? Everything looks bigger than it is, and you know, shadows look longer. And so, uh, you know, I always liked to imagine, or sometimes thought that I saw the gloom, particularly pooling on that side of the the store, because the fluorescent lights wouldn't reach over the protective shelf of the the cartoons, which occupied their whole shelf. Right. right. So, I'd go there for my GI Joe or my Transformers, and you know, you turn around, and boom, there's you know, there's the eight Friday the Thirteenth, uh, six Nightmare on Elm Street. Four Texas Chainsaw Massacres, and you know, well, and two. Well, at that point, two flies. You know, the fly and its its sequel, right. which yeah, which I also kind of like, even though it's the even Eric, less the Eric Stoltz sequel or the original Fly Two sequel. Uh, the Eric Stoltz, right? The Eric Stoltz Fly Two, yeah. um, which is yeah, which is. But that's going to be a ballsy move to try and sequelize Cronenberg. Like, that's a ballsy move to try and attempt to do... It's like, oh, that guy did body horror. We can do that, right? We can do that. Yes, we can do do that. And, and of course, they couldn't. They didn't even really try. They turned him into a superhero. Sure. 
Um, but that was right the fuck up my alley. So I have, I uh, maintain an affection for the fly too, uh, even to this day, but nowhere near as much as, as original fly, um, for all the reasons that everyone cites for me, especially it taught me, um, what a horror movie really should be that, that, uh, that horror can be even more effective when it's got an actual idea behind it. Well, it also, it's one of those films, and, you know, we've just been talking about remakes, but it's one of those films uh, that I would cite, you know, along with Carpenter's The Thing. A remake is allowed, is allowed when it is done by a filmmaker with actual, like, intent and artistry and skill, and it's not just a... Look, all movies are a financial idea, so let's stop using that as an argument, the internet, because everything is there to make money. If they're putting it on a big fucking screen in your multiplex, they want money. So let's want your money. So let's stop using that. Because every every time I say this, there was like, "Uh, no, all movies are made for money. I understand that. Let's move on past that discussion and say basically that like the fly and the thing and things like that. In fact, Carpenter didn't want to remake the thing, but uh, that's why he went back to the book. Because he loved the original too much, but um, and, and he had, and more, yeah, and more importantly, he had an idea in right. his head. But let's he also say that thought. that those were movies that were made before the advent of physical effects, as we know, or as we knew them, rather, in the eighties and the nineties. So there was even a a valid technological reason to update the films. CGI is not that example you cannot say oh well now we have cgi so we should remake the thing because we have cgi no the thing is just turn it into an alien ripoff which is exactly what they did exactly so before going down the remake thing i'm just i just wanted to bring it back because we're about to talk about like the fly and things like that Uh, that is allowed the reason why i allow that is because cronenberg was already had a body of work that proved himself as an original creative artistic you know, talented director and and film producer, uh, much in the way that Carpenter did, long before they did a remake. Nowadays, most of the people directing remakes rarely have a film under their belt. Yeah, nowadays remakes are make-work projects uh, for people out to prove themselves. If you're an untested director, then people are, well, studios are just too afraid to give you any you know, any control of anything whatsoever. So you basically get assigned to right. whatever's coming down the pipe. Now, you can argue like Rob Zombie, but that's what was so saddening about Rob Zombie's Halloween is like his movies or not like his movies, at least he was making... They weren't original because they were all based on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but... But they um, were his. They were his, right. And then he went off and did two Halloweens, which he's now backing out of. Now he's saying, oh, that was a terrible experience. He's now said that in recent interviews. And I'm like, you fucking dick. You went and made a second one. You can say maybe one was pushed on you by a studio. And you can say maybe one was a miserable experience. But when you fucking go back to the well and make a second remake, that's it. Off the artistic register. Fuck off. Of course. But he was never on mine in the first fucking No, right. Place. Sorry. I mean, anyway, I can't... Rob Zombie. <laughs> did, have you bought... Did you... Have you listened to his CDs? No. Jesus Christ, man. This, yeah. I don't know what people were expecting out of him, but some of us actually paid money for his music back in the 90s when he actually made music. And yes, as far as we're concerned, we yeah, he's done nothing um, but 
you know, be predictable, just imminently predictable. Indeed, sir. Indeed. I feel so, like Sean Bean and Goldeneye watching Rob Zombie. I mean, it's like <laughs> insulting to believe that he thinks that that's news. Of course, those movies were a horrible experience. They're horrible messes of crap. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and movies do not come out being that horrible or crappy unless the, you know, the people making them had a terrible fucking time. Yeah, indeed. I quite, I quite agree. Well, unless it's a t- you can have a terrible time as long as it's a struggle towards a common purpose that's worthwhile. Oh, yes. And there were no common purposes on exactly. either of those. And they were not worthwhile whatsoever. Yeah. No. I mean, yeah, yeah. Everyone on the original Halloween had a terrible time because they were trying to make California look like Illinois in the <laughs> middle of summer. Right, exactly. In the late 70s. And not just California, but you can spit and hit like Sunset Boulevard from the set of Halloween. <laughs> yep, from that, from the from the road, right? Yeah, right. from that street. That yeah, there. Yeah, like Hollywood is just a little bit was just a little bit that way the whole time. Where that? Like, well, where the babysitting houses are, the, the rest is done in Pasadena, which is a bit further out. But uh, well, that's a bit. Yeah, but that's still Pasadena, right? Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Trying to pass for Illinois. I mean, at least at least in at least by you know number six, they'd moved production to Salt Lake City, where it was cheaper. I mean, at least <laughs> that kind of looks like the midwest i mean right. at least you're a little bit further there you're almost to the rockies yes almost <laughs> but still you know you get, don't watch the halloween franchise with anyone who was actually from illinois because no. they'll just be laughing the whole damn time right well also because that's like <laughs> in in the part of illinois like yes around chicago or whatever but the you know the parts of illinois that one presumes the small rural towns are in there's not much around there certainly no. isn't what they they present in halloween at no all. there is nothing out there that is i've only lot. driven along the i-80 through illinois so i've only been sort of through the bottom half of it i haven't been uh, i haven't been up near the uh, great lakes or anything Oh, it gets a little bit more diverse there, but you st- it gets a little bit more packed in there, but you still get the same kind of thing. You get long stretches of absolutely nothing, which yeah. you'd think would be perfect for any kind of horror movie. I mean, what is worse than the fear of isolation, you know, loneliness, yeah. and the vast, you know, over, you know, art-hanging vault of nature just, you know, just about to crush you with something, you know, well, a I wish killer. I wish that it wasn't the case that, you know, studios are so scared now, they kind of tend to find somewhere that's cheap to film, camp there, and try and film everything within a three-mile radius. But uh, <laughs> That's would, why, yep, yep, that's why uh, everything um, was, looks, yeah, looks that's why half of everything's in Vancouver and the rest is moving to Australia. Right. But what what has always surprised me, like, if you look at, funny you mentioned Australia, and I was I was um, uh, looking at some, uh, some road movies today online. I forget who brought it up, the one with... Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Stacey Keach. Road games. Road games. That's it. Yeah. So I was I was talking about road games today, and and it's interesting that like there's quite a tradition of outback movies in Australia, or certainly like road movies and road horror movies and things like that, um, and they actually use their country. Well, having driven across America, I mean, okay, albeit only once, but having driven across it, it would be great to see some movies use the middle of the fucking country. It's There's a so pretty much... big one, and yeah, we've got right. some diverse biomes out here. Yeah, I'm just sick and tired of I mean, I live in Manhattan, and I'm just sick and tired of every other movie I see being shots of the Brooklyn fucking oh, bridge. I bet. I bet it gets even more annoying when you're in there, when you're actually there, and you can see the shit for free. 
It's like when you watch TV shows from the 70s, you're like, oh, look, Bronson Canyon. Oh, look, Bronson Canyon. Like, they're using Bronson Caves like every other fucking show. Uh-huh. In or, the 70s. Yeah, or uh, TV or sci fi serials from the same period. Oh, great. We're back in, we're back in Griffith Park, are we? Right. Uh-huh. And what's funny about that, what I didn't realize till I actually went there, what's absolutely hysterical about Bronson Caves is you step out of Bronson Caves, the other side, not the not the Batman exit, but the other side. <laughs> but the other end. The other, once you've gone through the cave, because it's really just a hole in the cliff. Uh, as you go through it, if you step to the right and, and look to your right, you can see the Hollywood side. Like, you can almost reach out and touch it. Like, it's so Perfect. in fucking Hollywood. It's right there. Yeah, so... That's uh, why it's perfect. And that's why it's in every movie you can think of. It's... <laughs> right. My but, favorite still, um, Robo Man. Yeah, that from 1951. That, right, yeah. yes. Um, I was going to ask, so did do you think, if you saw Tremors first then... Was that presumably before Godzilla and things like that? Like, do you think that monster movie led to your love of monster movies or? No, I know for a fact that, let's see, that I saw Godzilla first. Let's see, that brings up an interesting distinction. Uh, At that video store, in the G section, I found uh, Godzilla 1985. Right. And that is, and that was the only Godzilla film that was, uh, you know, shelved there. The rest of them were spliced through, uh, just spread around throughout the action section because there was no sci-fi section at that time um, in that video store. Um, but uh, uh, no, I know for a, f- but see, it's a Godzilla movie, and it's Godzilla 1985, which is a which is not really a remake. It's an actual sequel that just feels like a remake because Godzilla movies kind of all feel the same if to most non-observers. Right. Um, well, because a big, a big creature comes out of the sea and attacks a city. Right, and nobody <laughs> pays attention to uh, any of the human characters because... <laughs> They're a human character? <laughs> exactly, yeah, right? Because who cares, right? You no, know, dude, just, when, just when... fools like me who care about fucking stories, right? But the thing about Godzilla 1985 is it's a disaster movie uh, that puts most of the American disaster movies of the period to shame with the possible exception of The Day After, which came out like three years before. Right. Or Two years, like actually, maybe the year before, um, but yeah, it's uh, Godzilla nineteen eighty five is the day after with a giant monster. So I would hold it up as inherently superior, of um, course, <laughs> just by factor of Godzilla. Um, and so, but but most people, you you know, you tell you that you go up to most people and tell them that's your favorite horror movie. They stare at you blankly because the the other thing, despite. Cronenberg's apparent influence on us, or at least one of his films has managed to worm their way into our heads. Um, but in spite of that, most of our generation seems to have this um, just really unfortunate fixation on slasher movies uh, and view them as the default horror. See, for, uh, for me, they're just one. Simply. They're just one subgenre of it. I always put monster movies. I know, right? In, in between, to, to me, on my video shelf because I have all my videos organized because I'm a big anal geek, and also I have now a million DVDs because I. Do you fa- organize? Do you organize by genre? You crazy bastard! I, I organize I'm- by genre, and within genres, I organize by stars and directors. Uh, oh if, my if god! I'm, if I I'm can able never to. do that. 
if I'm able to. So I'm kind of weird because I have like my Bruce Campbell section. And of course, that crosses many genres. But anything with him in it has to be all together. It's just just the way it is. Uh, But then from there, I go into like Raimi movies. So I have like my Drag Me to Hell or whatever and (laughs) and my Dark Man and stuff. And then from there, I go into like Carpenter and then I have Romero and blah, 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 blah. And and my Romero, because it's zombie films, then goes into like uh, semi-monster movies, things like um, Piranha and Jaws and stuff like that. And then uh, because it's they're sort of human tragedies, but there's also like kind of uh, 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 oh uh, heck with that though jaws is a monster movie no no they're monster movies. what i mean by monster Truth. movies is that they're they're things that we already know exists they're not made up monsters they are existing monsters who happen to be i yes right. I, I understand i used so, to make the same distinction so um, i have that that then blows over into like you know godzilla or whatever like some some big monster movie and then it that slowly blends into sci-fi which there is a big blend from sci-fi to horror anyway, thanks True. to the Alien series. And, <laughs> um, oh, that's just... And really, and that's Horizon just the tip of the iceberg. And, right, everything, everything, that Alien, everything that directly inspired Alien was usually uh, marketed as a horror movie in its time. Like, right. the, the, the movie most directly responsible for Alien would be uh, a movie called um, It, the Terror from Beyond Space. Yes, exactly. Right. All those old, yeah, I have all those old, like, uh, you know, it came from outer space movies or, like, the the giant fly movies or the giant, you know, spider movies. Giant or, grasshopper. Giant yeah, grasshopper. Giant grasshopper. Uh, the deadly mantis was, yeah. yes. And so you have all those, because I have, like, a, a box set of creature features as well that have, like, all these. It has the, the monster of Crater Lake, which, of course, is in your home state of Oregon. Yeah. Um, and I've been to it. That's why. That's why I picked it up. It was one of those like four ninety nine box sets of like old black and white creature movies. Oh, I love those. Yeah, I and love I was those. like, those I've, have been right. such a gift to me. Those, those things. So yeah. I picked them up. So I have them, and then it goes into science fiction. So I totally have all that stuff. Anything that's like dark or weird or horrific or whatever, it's all within the same remit, as far as I'm concerned. Because it's not a fucking romantic comedy. <laughs> and, and, whilst and it's not a period piece. Right, drama. it's not a period piece. It's not a drama. It's not a kitchen sink drama. It's not a foreign movie. It's, it's um, and, and, you know, you could maybe cross over into action on some things. And, in fact, Dr. Action and Certainly. I have been talking about action horrors recently. But, Certainly. But ultimately, horror and sci-fi, I put them, and monster movies, therefore, as a mid-category, I put them all in together completely. Okay. In that case, then the uh, let's see. The other thing that happened at uh, to me at a very young age was in 1993, uh, the Universal Monsters Classic Collection, and I call it that because that's how it was sold to me. Uh, became they they all celebrated their um, 60th anniversaries. Right. And so what happened was they all got re-released on VHS to. You know, uh, to an entire new generation of kids who had grown up hearing about all of these things and never being able to see them on the four channels we had on our TVs at the time, which never played movies really anyway. And uh, they're technically all monster movies. What is Dracula really, if not a monster? What is Frankenstein if not a monster? What is the creature from the Black Lagoon? You know, they're all monster and movies. The inf- and for me, you know, for me it was the Invisible Man. 
Because ah, I, now that's love that, I love the book already, and I loved Claude Rain's voice even more. I still hear his voice when I reread that thing. Well, the book uh, is so – the book – what surprised – I read the book in junior school as well, and what surprised me – I remember reading it and, like, looking around while I was reading it going, I hope no one realizes what's in this book because it's so fucking violent, that book. <laughs> I mean, fantastically so. I mean, fantastically so and beautifully written. But you do read it as a kid thinking – I'm allowed to read this. Like, this is because it's considered it like classic literature or whatever. So you can it, read yes, it. That is classic literature. Yes. Right. And it is a very, yes, it is an extremely, um, it, you could remake it. Shit. Eli Roth could remake that today and you oh, wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Him, yeah. Please don't give him any fucking ideas. <laughs> <laughs> What, you want him to star in another Quentin Tarantino movie? No, I, I, I want someone to actually explain to me what the <laughs> fuck that man is doing having any kind of a career. I wouldn't trust him with a mop and a fucking broom in the corner of being a janitor for a warehouse. Well, personally, I have my own theory about that, but I blame the MPAA, as I usually do, for okay. these things. That's where we get this the lost the decade just passed this lost decade that yes. we're still kind of in right now we are yes uh, i mean i can't think of the last decent horror movie i saw on the big screen i'm really trying to think of one and i can't think of one uh-huh like all, all the good horror movies i'm watching are, are all from the 80s and before and in fact i'm going to see both this week and next week tomorrow night i'm going to see the original uh, black and white uh, uh, creature from the Black Lagoon uh, on the big screen in New York with a, a remastered print. And um, did they did they put it back into 3D? The way they did put it God back intended. Into, they did put it back into 3D. I am seeing it in 3D. Yes, which is going to be amazing. And yes, then, <laughs> it is. I am then, I am slightly envious of you, even though I know it would give me a hellacious headache. Yeah. Well, next week. I'm going to see Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein because the wonderful people at TCM and the wonderful people uh, over at Universal and the wonderful people at FathomEvents.com who are who are kind of big geniuses because they found another use for multiplexes, um, <laughs> which we all knew existed. Anyone who's ever been to a fucking midnight movie or a double bill or an art house or whatever that have to survive on being, you know, inventive. We all know that this stuff can be done with cinemas. It's just multiplexes that are boring fucking places. But that don't yes, because yeah, because they don't have any cre uh, creative bone in the fucking place. Right. It's, but, yeah. But in Swoop's Fathom Events and what Fathom Events did like when Singing in the Rain I think hit was it 60th or 75th or something? I yes, don't know what it was. Close to that. They did a big screening of Singing in the Rain on the big screen and now they're doing uh because it's uh, October, they're doing Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, the original two. Uh, they've got an introduction, a TCM introduction with an interview, I think, with Karloff's daughter. Perfect. That's going to start the piece. And then they're, they're showing the two movies back to back. So I'm seeing that next Wednesday. So Perfect. Yes. Oh, and see, that's perfect. Because those are original Frankenstein, yes, but Bride of Frankenstein especially. Those yes. would be two more. Um, just that's an, oh, to see those in... Mm, crisp black and white screen. on giant screens with the surround and everything like that and to see Creature of the Black Lagoon bless Film Forum which is the uh, uh, the art house cinema we're going to see that in uh, that they've managed to grab that uh, so that's very exciting Gen C I would have I would have slaughtered puppies to be able to see these things on the big screen when I was 10. I was doing, I just thought, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven when they, when I could watch them at home on, on VHS. But yeah. 
to oh man and to see them yeah and so i am glad that they still that they uh, still survive that they have still found continued to find new audiences it's because every time they've tried it's... to do a modern version of it the france four couplers dracula benicio del toro's wolfman they've paul been verhoeven's sh- hollow man paul yeah paul verhoeven's <laughs> they've been horrible and not in a way that they've been intended so really well, see this is what's funny about it. The reason why those classic films, to some extent, apart from the fact that they're incredibly well made, and the same can be said for the Hammer movies, the reason why they exist and continue to exist and continue to thrive and continue to get re-releases and everything else like that is because everything we've done since has been crap. <laughs> we haven't been able to tell a fucking decent story with those characters since that time, really. Exactly. We have just been able to reference the ones that we saw as children. Right. And that is not how this thing works. You know, you're supposed to take what you have and you're supposed to uh, put another spin on it. You're supposed to twist it. You're supposed to evolve it yes. and transform it like some, yeah, like a slithering extraterrestrial monstrosity trying so, to take over a kennel of dogs. Indeed, indeed. So I'm getting I'm getting a vibe from you, dude, that you were like watching a lot of these old stuff and watching it like the, the, the Godzilla stuff and a lot more sort of monstery movies and things as a a young kid um have you always sort of not gravitated towards slasher films and that kind of 80s uh either the slasher films or the body horrors or the you know stuff like society and things like that and the usner movies um or did did you come across those later and do you like some of them or not all of them i'll tell you it was an interesting i'll tell you it's been it's an interesting thing what i what happened was i i got both, I got it at both ends. I had influences <laughs> from the 80s and the 40s kind of um, mashed together into my brain and uh, give me what passes for my current taste. And so what really struck me is that um, that uh, they t- all these films, they taught me that horror movies can be most effective when they are about more than their plot. Most of them are dismissed as melodramas and melodramas are supposed to be by definition plot driven but in the best of them of course that's not the case at all. Bride of Frankenstein is about uh, you know a monster's quest to convince his creator to make uh, you know make him a bride but it's also about the what makes humanity you know worth joining in the first place to say nothing of saving from dr frankenstein's case or you know ruling from dr pretorius's case you know it's about the fly uh cronenberg's fly isn't you know it's about a guy who gets drunk one night and decides to make a really stupid decision um (laughs) right because his, you know, because, you know, sure, she left him because his girl, he's jealous of his girlfriend, right? But it's also about, it's about the inevitable future that we will all face if um, our, you know, if we uh, survive our parents or if we survive anyone who has a terminal illness. It's about, you know, that's the real, the real horror uh, does lie with Jeff Goldblum, at least for a while, but we leave him. Uh, a bit, you know, uh, in, in like the third act, we pretty much leave him in his apartment, and it's the horror starts focusing on Gina Davis, 
because she's the one who's going to really survive the thing. And, and she was the one in the first scene. We just didn't notice because of the gold bloom. And so <laughs> she's the one at the end of the movie, uh, too, who's going to have to do whatever, what she has to do at the end of that movie. And so it's really her story. Um, and she, you know, and her, and her horror is the horror of, uh, is a universal kind of horror because it's a horror of survivors. And, you know, we're all going to outlast somebody, uh, sooner or later. Right. And, and so, yes. And, and so, yeah. And, and so that's really fucking frightening, especially if like me, you're six years old at the time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and so because, so because of that, I was forced to turn, to uh, turn around and ask myself, okay, why is this frightening? And, and, you know, that this, that, or the other fucking thing isn't. Because once I, you know, once I saw the fly, of course, it scared the fuck out of me. But what I noticed was nothing after that, you know, nothing could touch me. I was, I was invincible. I just, I, I and after that, I just blasted through uh, everything I could get my hands on. Um, not just the classics, not just, you know, the, the mummy, the wolfman and, you know, uh, Dracula, but um, stuff like uh, both blobs from the fifties and the eighties, uh, though I prefer the eighties one uh, just for its special effects work and for right. its better characters who can actually pass for teenagers, but the blob, um, the stuff, uh, Larry Cohen's work as a whole, actually uh, from yes. it's alive to Q, obviously Q. Obviously I mean, it's a giant Q. monster movie with Kane uh, from Kung Fu. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> in it, I mean, that's just you know, and and Richard Roundtree and Shaft, you yes. know, a, a, a giant monster movie where Kane and Shaft are buddy cops in New York. Yes, please. Yes, please. Not only that, but back when New York was actually worth filming because there was that like too. you know Detroitus everywhere. Well, shit, I didn't know the difference. I mean, no, right. yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of you know, I think of New York. I'm thinking of like Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight's New York. <laughs> <laughs> You mean a sound Open. set in California? Yes, well, yes, California. exactly. Where there, there, are, uh, where the uh, flaming barrels of trash have to share space with the open barrels of toxic waste. Right, exactly. Yes, of course. <laughs> that the rats are are plainly swimming around in. Right, right. Um, but so, so yeah, I just, um, yeah, the being, the thing, uh, both things actually, because my father. My father uh, liked to tell the story about how um, the thing from another world freaked him right the fuck out when he was my when he was seven or eight or six he didn't really remember but at some point right he saw the thing as a young kid and that started him on his quest you know on his lifelong horror fandom so i'm really a second generation at this point yeah i get it i come by it honestly i got it in the genetics and so he encouraged this mightily and we both enjoyed the hell out of carpenter's thing and so you know it was it was all this it was all this stuff but 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 the the thing I got f uh, from that was a perspective on all of this, which is what a lot of people don't get when they have to hide these movies from their parents or you know just uh, you know hide them from their anyone who might potentially be grossed out. I got to actually I got the luxury of being able to turn to somebody and like ask questions and have discussions and like gain. Uh, critical thinking skills. Yeah. And so that is uh, pretty much why I cannot fucking stand uh, most of the American horror movies made in the last 10 to 15 years. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've been trying to rack my brains. I mean, really, I like, I like sort of all aspects of horror. And, you know, I think that there is, if I was going to say, the classic horror, uh, you know, the, the horror that has artistry to it, Yes. Nine times out of ten is going to be, and the reason why people's uh, directors' names like Romero and and uh, Carpenter and Craven and and people like that it, it continue to to um, find new fans and whatever is because their movies are not just about the monster getting the bad, you know, getting the people or whatever, like the bad guy coming after the the good people. The um, there's killer. there's lots of other stuff going on there, um, uh, but uh, at the same time, I have. Uh, a guilty pleasure type deal, although I don't really like that expression. Um, I also don't mind watching very hokey, very generic B-movie slashes or, um, you know, five people go into the woods and get murdered type movies. And, and And I also love, you know, gooey, stupid body horror stuff, you know, like Society and Reanimator and things like that. I love all that stuff as well. So, and but, then and see society. I'd say society is a lot smarter than people give it credit for. So I, it, I really it, do like that film. That's it's, a, it's a great film. It, it's its initial metaphor is a little blunt, but yes, I mean it's 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 uh, hey, it is smart given the way. given where we are now. In oh fuck the, yeah! Oh god, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would take it a million times over. And uh, that was what I was going to say. Is basically, uh, I used to say that I didn't like any music after 1979. Mm -hmm. Um, because most people who were good in the 60s who I grew up listening to, because my mum was a big old hippie. Yep, right there with you. uh, Right, exactly. Anyone went shit in the 80s. So I always thought, like, fuck that. Now, actually, you know, then I discovered that there's plenty of good music that was made during the 80s. It's just you don't fucking hear it. They just constantly play George Michael over and over again. You want to kill yourself. Or Duran Duran. Or Duran Duran or T'Pau or any of those fucking things. So... Although I don't know if Americans get the reference of Tapao. It was a big hit. China in Your Hand was a big hit in the UK. I don't know if it was hit. Really? But, oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. I, yes, I get it. I just didn't want it. Right. <laughs> Simply Red and all that shit as well. But anyway, uh, just to just to plague your mind further. And, uh, and I used to, you, you know, and I you, could... Don't get me started on you Brits and your national taste in music. Oh, fuck. Don't even get me started on it. Oh, Jesus. Any country that can have Brian fucking Adams... From Prince of Thieves, <laughs> play fifteen weeks in the charts. Fifteen weeks. I wanted to pull my fingernails out and hit people with them. Uh, <laughs> well, hey, it's not. Hey, you know, I'm. Yeah, it's not much better over here. We're the country who has just gone ape shit over a Korean pop song that none of us can understand. Yeah, and, uh, that, that I don't get. I don't get that. I oh, don't... you know, we're all secret. Oh, you know, it's America. You know, it's all the racists. No, no, I, un- I understand that it was funny to see some people dancing in an elevator for 30 seconds, but but, but past that, I don't, I don't understand. I, it just goes, it goes over my head or it goes under my balls. I don't know, it goes somewhere. It doesn't, it doesn't hit me where my heart lives, put it that way. Well, in that case, they, well, in that case, people have actually caught themselves in a double blind because the, the song is supposed to be a joke in the first place. Right, I'm, I'm sure. It's, uh, yeah, uh, it's supposed to be a parody of the uh, lifestyles of the, well, not the rich and famous, but the uh, the nouveau riche and socially climbing right. in Gangnam, Korea's uh, richest, posh, richest neighborhood in the, you know, richest neighborhood and rich town. Okay. That place is, yeah, just, psh. so, yes, it's it's thug life. Um, yeah. Right, uh, I by, understand. 
But yeah, no, so I was going to say I could make, I could possibly draw a line somewhere in the middle 90s and sort of say that I like pretty much any of the horror subgenres um, and probably could name, you know, five to ten movies from each of those horror subgenres that I really love before that time. And, and after that, really, most of the things, most of the horror movies that I have after that are either the occasional dip back into the genre by established directors. In other words, mm-hmm. like Romero coming back to zombie movies and Raimi going back to Drag Me to Hell and Carpenter, you know, doing a couple of things at the end of the 90s, early millennium, stuff like that. Or it's European horror. It's it's. I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say most of my stuff French from this stuff, century, Spanish stuff, a couple of Australian things. Mm-hmm. It's it's that kind of thing. Yep, and and me, I'm I'm right there with you. And in circling uh, Japan, uh, Hong Kong, and you know Seoul, Korea, South Korea. Yeah. Now you see, um, I dipped my toe into the whole Japanese horror, and I was going to ask you about that as well because I, I I wondered if you were. Sort of you saw Ring? Better verse about. I, I saw Ring. I saw um, the original Grudge Juan. You saw Drudge. Yeah, you saw Grudge. Okay, did you see the eye? Uh, I didn't see the eye. I don't think see I've the seen eye. the eye. Okay, it's just, I, I, I kind of dipped my toe into it and I was like, okay, I didn't, I didn't get the atmosphere. It didn't scare me. It seemed to be, look, and this is, this is very generic and I'm going to make a kind of Cabin in the Woods type joke, but it totally seemed fit. to be... Uh, find a spooky looking kid, paint it white, give it a bowl haircut, stick it coming out of a wall or out of a TV or out of a whatever, and, and that'll be fine. Like, I, you know, something like Juon, for example, um, I found very, because obviously it, it's, it's, uh, only subtitled, and because it jumps all over the place timeline wise, mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult to get into. Uh, it, it was very difficult to follow. And it was very difficult for me to kind of be like, okay, so wait a minute, is that going to be the same person as that person that I saw earlier? And why are they doing that now? And what's going? So actually, when the creepy little boy showed up, I didn't, like, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't scare me at all because I was still trying to figure out who the fuck was who, who and what they was were doing. who and what were they so doing? Yes. I, I well, okay, yeah. Find it a little um, impenetrable. Now I've seen like some of uh, Takashi Miike's stuff that's more sort of gore horror or action I was gonna, horror. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, um, I've yeah, seen cause, that stuff. Cause... I like that stuff. But I, I, the the actual what's meant to be like Japanese horror, I, I, I couldn't get into so much. Oh, what's meant to be. Yeah, what, whatever. You mean what's marketed as in right. this country. Sure, yeah, um, of course. Because it got, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, it was... Oh, I am, uh, I am dumb white Westerner. That I am dumb white Westerner. I, I only... Well, so am I. But <laughs> see, for me, what uh, what got me into it was um, Audition in 99, which right. is uh, Mikay's movie. Sure. And it's the movie that he that pretty much broke him through the, you know, on the other side of the ring of fire onto, you know, our side here. And it came out in a crowded fucking year, but it took me like years to find it until like 2003 or so. But when I finally saw it, I was like, oh, there's, yes, there's something to this, uh, something to this man. This man is a man to look out for. And then he does Ichi and... Then he does Dead or Alive, and uh, then he does, yeah, so many, just, yeah, a shit ton of others. And even his non, even his not, you know, his supposed non-horror movies are pretty, yeah, they're pretty fucking horrible. He can, he can find a way to sneak it in there, just at the weirdest times. And it, it can be, uh, it can occasionally give you whiplash, but I I think his whiplash is always intentional. 
That's the thing about Mike. I never uh, feel that I am in the hands of... Um, it, he's nowhere near the madman that he uh, pretends to be, or that his publicist pretends that he is. Right. I never feel that he is not 100% in control, even when he's doing something like Zebra Man. Right. Most horror directors are not. Most horror directors are very, you know, careful, well-thought-out, well-spoken, calm, you know, individuals. If you, I mean, it's... It, uh, but see... They still manage to make crappy movies. This guy manages to be that, and his movies still manage to be consistently good, uh, even when they are, even when they're obviously remakes foisted upon him by a studio that's desperate for cash. Thirteen right. assassins. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. So um, let's uh, boil it down then. So what we're going to do? The last two questions we're going to talk about. First of all. Uh, the big ultimate question, which is, you know, if you had to pick either one film or one group of films that would be your desert island horror movies, in other words, the only ones you could take with you uh, to the desert island, uh, what would they be? And then the other question is, let's pick some horror movies that we both like to recommend to our dear listeners if they haven't heard or seen them yet. So uh, first up, what is your favorite? What is the big daddy of horror for you, sir? Ooh, let's see. If I were trapped on a desert island, then I would very much like, yes, then I would very much like to have the Godzilla series with me. Okay. Um, mostly because I put a lot of hours into completing this collection, and it is complete, and I would not part with it uh, for anything, you know, short of the cyclo invasion force. And I was very lucky to hear James Hong because, of course, he was one of the people uh, brought in to dub, right? The original, the original Godzilla. Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Yes, one of the yes, one of the lucky few. Which and he, he actually stuck around a lot. He did a lot of those. Uh, yeah. You can hear him on. Uh, I think you can hear him on original Mothra and probably somewhere in the cast of Rodan. I know Sulu is in the cast of Rodan. Um, yeah. Well, he said one of the jokes he said is obviously. He went in, him and his friend, I forget who his, what his friend's name was. I've got the interview somewhere on um, on uh, audio where I recorded at the Comic-Con. But um, he, he said that him and his friend went in to, to the audition. Because this guy had just purchased Godzilla, right? He just purchased the, the film can for like 35 grand or something. It wasn't very yep. much. And he's made yep. obviously... Billions low, low off price. it since. Right. He made billions off it since. But him and his friend went in, and they were like, well, we're not Japanese, so I don't know quite what we're going to do. But <laughs> they, they had this comedy act where I think the Chinese were sort of taking the piss out of the Japanese, and they would do these sort of stupid Japanese they accents. Were. They were. It's right. a national pastime in right. China. <laughs> so Hong went in and did his, like, stupid Japanese accent from his comedy sketch, and the... <laughs> And the guy was like, that's great, you're hired. Of course. <laughs> so he was saying, like, that's the, how it worked. For the first yes. Godzilla movie, he was basically <laughs> doing a piss take accent. You know, it'd be like me doing a Texan or something, you know. And that's how and that's how it was, down through the ages. And that's why uh, that's why they uh, get there. That's why most people have trouble considering them horror movies, because right. they, they get hung up on the bad dubbing, which is why I'm, yeah, which is why I'm so glad to live uh, for all the horrors of this century, I'm so glad to live in a time when I can get all uh, 28 of these things in their original language um, with optional subtitling or optional uh, hilarious dubbing track for whenever I want to inflict them on my friends. Right, exactly. 
And I think, look, I, I, there's, there is a certain charm now to monster movies with hilarious dubbing. So I think, I think that's, perf- I think that's perfectly acceptable. And you know, oh, the charm is always the charm has always been there. Right, and and, and you know, as, and as much as as much as I uh, as much as I may come across as being super serial, I will say that uh, one of my go-to uh, horror movies this season has been 1971's Zat. <laughs> have you have you heard of Zat? I have not, sir. That sounds incredible. You C-A-T. may know it. You may know it by its uh, name. It was originally released to uh, the drive-in circuit, The Blood Waters of Dr. Z, uh, originally made by an industrial film production company in okay. uh, South Florida that decided to make themselves a monster movie in 1970. So they got together the the most hilarious crew of non-professional actors they could possibly find. Uh, and slapped them into this story about a mad scientist who turns himself into a fish monster and goes on a reign of terror searching for a viable candidate to turn into his fish monster bride. Well, the uh, user review on IMDb says this. It was, it's, it's two sentences. My teenage son bet me that this movie, once viewed by me, would be the worst movie I'd ever seen. As a, life, <laughs> as a lifetime movie buff, I found this highly unlikely. I was wrong. <laughs> That's the review. It gets one star and it says terrible. But I think I would probably like it because I am obviously I'm a big big fan of, you know, either uh, no, alien and or monster movies from the 70s. So Dude, as much as you love uh Galaxy Quest? Yes. And and that that entire yeah, all that entire oeuvre, yes. you you need to you need to do yourself a favor and sit down with Zat. It was just released on Blu-ray. There was improbably enough a Laserdisc release of this movie when Laserdisc was big. Wow! So they've taken yeah uh, they've yeah so that is uh, that is available as a bootleg, um, but they have since remastered it into an official Blu-ray release. Uh, just. This year or last, um, but very recently, uh, it is now available. And of so, course, yeah. it's, it's the one thing that people don't really mention a lot. But the fact that even the the slasher genre, once it ran its course of you know American teenagers just being killed by some axe wielding lunatic or some you know stabby guy or whatever went the creature route and started to do, you know, creatures who would come back and stalk you or, you know, dolls brought back to life that would come back and stalk you or... Yep, the full moon over... Right. Uh, uh, And part of trauma, too. Right, but you've also got, like, you know, gremlins and ghoulies and, you know, all those kind of critters critters uh, and, you know, which are all technically slasher movies, but also all technically monster movies as well. So, uh... You know, you've obviously got the Chuckies, which is the doll stuff, which obviously you've got. You've <laughs> child's got... Pl- yeah, the Child's Play series is right. that that they're just they just get more hilarious as time goes on. Right, or le- <laughs> Leprechaun, of course, and all those. So I, what I like, what I liked about the slash, what I'm intrigued by by the slasher genre, and I will be talking about this on my actual like the the show that comes out the week of Halloween. Um, because we're doing some slashes there. Uh, what I like about it is how, yes, there were hundreds and hundreds that were just generic. Like, oh, quick, pick a holiday, call it that, and let's go ahead and just make a movie where a bunch of teenagers kill each other. Day. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, or whatever it is. Um, 
But there were also a bunch of slasher movies and subgenres within the slasher genre and subgenres below that and crossovers and mix-ups and whatever that actually get kind of interesting and and in at the very least inventive. You know what I mean? My go-to there, yes, my go-to there would be Dollman versus the Demonic Toys. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, hey, look, anything with Tim Thomason, all hail Tim Thomason. No um, shit, right? But just that <laughs> title, right? Imagine being being ten or however old I was, and just seeing that. To say nothing of that title on top of that poster. Right, exactly. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I recently picked up, I think there's a three-disc set, which has uh, Dollman, Demonic Toys, and then Dollman versus Demonic Toys. I think that's what it has on it. But I picked pick, pick that up anyway. If that is true, then I have found a new uh, yeah windmill to tilt against, a new white whale to catch, yes. Yes, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. Um, obviously... Uh, so let's yeah let's do I don't know how many you want to pick but the, but just from the top of your head so from your DVD shelf maybe if you're sat there uh, you know p- pick out four or five that you would suggest people watch this Halloween season. I'd say yes. Um, I'd say it, yeah. Um, go well. Obviously, I'd go with Trimmers uh, because it needs to be more famous. Um, Critters you mentioned the first one especially because it is. Uh, very, uh, it's it's not nearly the Gremlins ripoff that everyone thinks it is. It's no. m- much better than I think, and, and much more inventive than anyone gives it uh, really credit for. Oh, and you'll um, be but, pleased to know that in the UK, Tremors is a lot more famous. Tremors is like the go-to university movie, and that that fills me with joy. Yes, is what that does. That that gives me hope. For um, my British cousins, I appreciate. Um, but okay, and from uh, that same quasi period as Critters and uh, that era, have you have you ever heard of a movie called Night of the Creeps? I have. Yes, I did it last year on the uh, Halloween episode of the Diner last year with Mister. Okay, Scott then Tini. I am just yes. Then I am. I have a faulty memory. Um, but yes, night, everyone needs to see Night of the Creeps. It's got Tom Atkins in it. Everyone needs to watch every film with Tom Atkins in ever. And Steve Marshall and Jason Levy. I mean, yeah. How could you go wrong? But yes, Tom Atkins is a hard-boiled detective. Um, it's also got Rusty Griswold in it, right? Yes, and it's got lots and lots of uh, alien zombie menaces. Yes, it's got yes. an alien zombie army to be, and, to be later, and an axe-wielding maniac. To be later ripped off by uh, the guy you don't like very much from the trauma school in uh, Slither. Yes. Mr. Yes. Gunn. Mr. Gunn. Mr. Gunn. If anyone remembers our discussion of uh, do-it-yourself uh, superhero movies that David and I had, uh, you will remember that Mr. Gunn's name came up, not in a favorable light. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. The man has yet to prove himself to me. He's not quite on my ancient enemies list, but we'll see where he no. goes. See, the problem was he he prodded my geek nerve and put Nathan Fillion in a film. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yep. That's that's what they that's what they do these days. Because yep, <laughs> everybody claps. Arf arf arf. Now, um, but see, and, and I can't really, help it. I will have my Fillion. I want my Fillion. I've not yet had my fill of Fillion. <laughs> <laughs> no one. I think no one has had their fill of Fillion quite yet. Um, but there's also, uh, the, let's see, there's also, uh, God, there's so many. There's the Howling. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. Which is just, yeah, which you also covered in your Joe Dante episode. But that was also another one. Um, from where very I, sh- where I shockingly said that because maybe I've seen American Werewolf in London too much, that the transformation in the howling was at least more 
kind of interesting and visceral and weird? I I can't sign on to that statement because the American Werewolf in London, um, yes, as no American Werewolf in London is incredible. I'm not knocking it at all. It's one of like it's definitely in my top ten, top fifteen of horror movies of all time. But having seen it a million times, like I have, and The Howling, which I've only seen maybe two or three times. The howling just occasionally feels a little fresher. That's more where I was coming from. Because In that case, then, yeah, I can totally see that. I can totally see that. Because his face um, does that big blobby, bubbly thing, which is kind of fun. And his eyes and, go all weird. And there's all, <laughs> yes, and, and there's and there's a uh, transformation sex scene in The Howling, uh, right. which is it, not in American Werewolf in right, London. Right, but the transformation sex scene is done with animation and particularly poorly, if I remember right. Yes. Uh, yes, um, but so yeah, there's that. Um, but more and and on the uh, actually, this is a duology that pretty much spans my entire uh, taste in in horror. You have original Howling, uh, which is a straight up uh, werewolves in modern America movie directed by an actual director and uh, starring a decent cast of actual stars and future stars yeah. um, at the beginnings of their careers. And then right after it, you have Howling 2, Your Sister <laughs> is a Werewolf. Or, as it's known in the UK... Uh, go uh, ahead, John. Howling 2, as far as I was aware. Is there, is there a, a subtitle for Howling 2? Uh, they, they didn't give you the your subtitle? Two? The, my, my understanding is the original uh, title of um, Howling 2 was going to be Streba, Werewolf Bitch. Oh, no, not aware of that, sir. But then by the time I got into the Howling series, I think they'd all been re-released as the Howling 1, 2, 3, 4. Now, see, and see, mm. that's just, you, you know, who doesn't want to, who wouldn't want to buy a movie that says uh, Streba, Werewolf Bitch? Exactly. I mean, that's just, uh, and and so it stars Reb Brown. <laughs> right. And Christopher Lee. Of course. Um, Reb Brown plays the brother of the protagonist of the first movie who's trying to investigate what the hell happened to his sister. And Christopher Lee plays Christopher Lee in the Christopher Lee story. Yes. Where he's a werewolf fighter um, who gets to explain to Reb Brown, your sister is a werewolf. Or rather, your sister was a werewolf. Or she is a werewolf because it's it's such a horrible movie. Werewolves and vampires, they kind of, you know, it kind of crossbreeds werewolf and vampire mythology to a degree that I don't think even fans of the underworld games would even appreciate and it's it's just it's cheaply made um it's full of horrible acting uh all of the special effects take place in this weird kind of negative zone where the movie just cuts to i mean it's it's one of the worst fucking movies i've ever seen in my life and it is hilarious as long as you know what you're getting yourself into uh, you will have a lot of fun. So I was going to do my five, and then we'll wrap up, sir. Um, so I was going to pick some from the After Movie Diner blog from way back in the murky past of 2010 <laughs> uh, when I did the... Because uh, this weekend, uh, I haven't said this on the show yet, this weekend I am doing uh, with my friends in NYC... Um, Nick, who you've heard on the Don Dolo podcast, among mm-hmm. others, um, we well he does, uh, and his girlfriend Laurel, they host a uh, twelve movies, or no, normally it's ten movies with a couple of bonus features, but twelve movies over two days, normally the weekend before Halloween, 
to allow for people to have Halloween parties as well. Um, and uh, yes, uh, two years ago, uh, I wrote an extensive blog about both days and the movies that we watched. So some of my movies are going to be, be from there. Uh, and I'm going to encourage people to go back to the After Movie Diner blog and check that out, which can be found at aftermoviediner.blogspot.com uh, long before there was a podcast. And uh, one of the ones I would suggest people check out uh, straight away is the original uh, Swedish uh, vampire film Let the Right One In the original one in the Swedish oh, language yes. one because oh, that's yes. incredible one from my own list of horror movies uh, from Europe that I really really liked and unfortunately the director has gone on to make shit ever since but that would be uh, uh, High Tension or as it's called here what's it called here? it's called something else here no, it's called something else no, in the UK. It's in the UK, called something it's else called, in the UK. Over it's here, it's just play, high tension. Which is the direct translation of the French title, which is Haute Tension, or however they pronounce it. And uh, in uh, England, it's called Switchblade Romance, which is a kind of Marilyn Manson goth title. <laughs> in a and way. entirely inappropriate? Yes, because um, I don't think he uses a switchblade at any point, does he? No, he does not. Hence why I'm saying entirely inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dude, look, whatever, whatever, whatever we have to do. There's probably another movie about tension or something. Uh, I would also include uh, in my list of five Phantasm, because you can't have a Halloween period without one of the Phantasms. So I would suggest that definitely. Yes, and it better be the, it better be the first one, though. That's, that's all I'll say. I, I like all of them, but uh, that's, just, that's just me. I can't get enough of Reggie Bannister <laughs> and... Um, and and uh, Don Coscarelli. That's the, I can yeah I can relate to that. I can relate to that. Too. Uh, look, any ponytail wearing, uh, leather waistcoat wearing, uh, ice cream man playing the blues, he's instantly got my heart. That's all I'm that's, saying. That's true, and I do I do want his wardrobe. <laughs> and he's now my friend on Facebook, even though we've never met. Uh, well, and I Christ, him... ask him if he's still got that coat somewhere. Yes, I will do. I wished him happy birthday, and he gave me a very sweet reply. So that was nice. The other one, uh, everyone's favorite uh, slasher film, or should be everyone's favorite slasher film, or one of their favorites, is Sleepaway Camp, because it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> um, and it's, look, everyone talks about the ending of Sleepaway Camp, but man, I'm telling you, there is some shit going on in that movie. I don't even know where they got it from. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, the ending is a, the ending's just a distraction. To right. keep everyone from figuring out how genuinely fucked up that move, that series was from the beginning. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. It wouldn't be one of my uh, suggestions if I didn't mention um, a zombie film. So I need to pick a zombie film. Uh, and I'm going to go with uh, the film with Peter Cushing fighting... Well, no, Peter Cushing raising zombie Nazis uh, from the deep to attack uh, Car Robert Carradine, I think it is and a bunch of other people uh, from uh, Lucio Fulci movies, uh, which is Shockwaves. Uh, definitely check out Shockwaves, because it's the goggle-wearing underwater zombies, which are always fun. And let's pick one other one. Ah, oh, fucking hell. Check out Q the Winged Serpent, why don't you? Yes, do. Oh, and it's Wolfen. Awesome. And Wolfen. Do a double bill. Wolfen and Q the Winged Serpent. Because I can't get enough of Albert Finney wearing a <laughs> wearing a sweatband and uh, uh, fighting werewolves. <laughs> that's yeah, and and shit. That's true. I'd forgot. I'd almost completely forgotten about Wolfen. But yeah, that was another one. 
Yes. Yes. After you worked through the Howling series, yeah, you yeah. got to go with Wolfen. You got to um, go with Wolfen, and uh, in fact, fuck it. Go to my go to the blog right now. Look at the list of movies that I've been watching over Halloween and watch all of them. Uh, <laughs> I watched the Terror Train recently. That's pretty awesome. Um, well, of course, it's got uh, David Copperfield in it, uh, which, is <laughs> which is always awesome. Um, and and a fairly decent twist although if you know anything about horror films you see it coming at about the 40 minute mark got it well getting me thinking about well getting me thinking about werewolf movies got me thinking about um an actual good horror movie from the last 20 years that i would uh, hold up as an exemplar and that would be wolf wolf with jack nicholson yes with jack nicholson and the hardest working man in hollywood james motherfucking spader Yes, indeed. I did like Wolf. I thought it was very good. In fact, I would say the other the other two movies that are great horror movies, and he, for some reason, does not get his due over here, but that would be uh, Neil Marshall's Dog Soldiers and The Descent. Yes. The de- de- well, I'll give you Dog Soldiers. I'll give Yeah, totally. Uh, but I saw The Descent the best way. I saw The Descent without knowing anything about it other than it was Neil Marshall's next movie. I didn't know what it was about. I thought it was just going to be like a claustrophobic horror movie. I didn't realize there was monsters as well. So I just went in it thinking like, oh, okay, it's going to be a bunch of chicks get claustrophobic or whatever. I saw it on a double bill with The Thing in an outside screening uh, in London. So... Yeah, it kind of won my heart <laughs> right away. I can I can understand it. That's a good way. That's the best possible way to see that movie. Yeah. To see, well, it, either of them, really. But yes, the dis, mm, though, I don't know. The, there's something to be said for the claustrophobic atmosphere of a theater with a movie like Descent. True. Um, I, I did notice that once I got it to home video, its effects were noticeably lessened. Right. Um, but the yes, um, but but I I'll, I'll give you dog soldiers. I'm I'm all with you on dog soldiers because I actually like those characters a lot better. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, so well, look, uh, that has been a thrill. Thank you ever so much for jumping in at the last minute, David. It's been uh, fantastic to talk horror with you. And um, when is the next comic book thing that we're going to have you on to discuss? That is a very good question. Um, if you had given me a little more time to prepare, we could have actually done a Ghost Rider episode uh, for this season because um, I did finally see Spirit of Vengeance, and it was exactly uh, the crushing slog of mediocrity that I expected it to be. Um, but uh, better than the first one, at least. That was so. it. We were going to do a Ghost Rider episode. Okay, well, look... Um because I have them both now, so let's. Uh, I'll I'll watch that and let's try and pencil that in at some point before the end of the year, maybe or beginning Done. of next. Done. Perfect. All right, sir. Excellent. So that'll be the next time you hear David on the show, uh, doing it back in his rightful position as our comic book expert. Um, we will be doing a couple of Nick Cage flicks, and why not? We will be uncaging <laughs> Ghost Rider. Uh, both both ones. That'd be fantastic. Oh, yeah. Woo! Pimp your shit, sir. 
<laughs> well, anyone who wants to hear more of me rambling can check out my website at and you thought it was safe. That's a y t i w s dot com, and I am also one part of the unholy trinity that forms the traumatic cinematic show, which is traumatic cinematic dot automatic dot com, where you can download yeah all of our episodes as we discuss um, film. Me, myself, uh, my. Uh, my co-hosts, Magumbo and Mike, and we've got new episodes every week, uh, pretty much just like this, except with even more voices in your head. <laughs> exactly. And so, yes, please do, I urge everyone to, if they're not already, check David out and uh, see all his stuff and follow him on Twitter and do all that good stuff. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you ever so much, David, and uh, have, a, have a fantastically scary and spooky Halloween, sir. <laughs> oh, just you listen to your missus or miss out on all those kisses. If you're missing the kissing, then just listen to your Okay, so just before we finish today's episode, we're going to have a roundup of day two of our horror movie marathon uh, on this weekend. <laughs> and again, we're joined by uh, the wonderful Dr. Fiona Frankis, or as I like to call her, the missus. And we start off uh, today's film viewing with what was, what was the first film that we watched today? I was hoping you knew, because I forgot. <laughs> Okay, let's, uh, let's Oh, I know, Pumpkinhead. Oh, yes, we started off today's film viewing with Pumpkinhead. It felt like a very long... We only watched four films again today, but it felt like a very long day. Yeah, I think um, the sugar rush from yesterday. Yeah, we had a sugar hangover, I think, because we ate a lot, of, a lot of sugar. Today we were better. We ate more savoury stuff. So. Pumpkinhead, I think I've seen before. Okay. I just had that feeling. Um, Pumpkinhead sure. was an odd one. It's directed by Stan Winston, that most people know uh, as a famous uh, makeup artist, not a director. Yet it was very well done. I oh, thought. I liked it. I thought it was really, yeah, really well done. You, you got to know each character, right. which is hard to do. Um, it was a proper actually, '80s fantasy yeah. horror, like you know, a little fairy tale, you know, Hansel and Gretel type thing. Right. Yeah, a little uh, bit of fairy twist. tale, a little bit of horror, a little bit of. Whatever. And but even one, the, the jerky guy at the beginning, you felt for, and he kind of redeemed himself. You know, he tried to save his girlfriend. He, a little bit. Re- I mean, he was still a big dick. He locked two of his friends in a cupboard for no reason. Not for no reason. He didn't want to go to jail. Yeah, no, because he had been a big dick all his life. <laughs> <laughs> but And then when you realize he was, that was his younger brother. Well, it was a weird film. I mean, very, very quickly, because I don't want to spend too long on, on these films, but Lance Henriksen lives in a literally one-horse town, well, one pig town, let's say, um, in the middle of the sticks somewhere, I don't know where, uh, and with his son. No explanation, really, of where the wife was or what had happened oh, with the uh, mother. Oh, she died. They, they showed him putting flowers on her grave. Oh, okay, fair enough. So, but, uh, but they don't show you that till way into the movie. Right, so. okay, so yeah, I thought it could have been like a, a, a mother But or when a, he was a, a child, he actually saw a figure of pumpkin, the pumpkin head. head. Yeah, right. There killing. was a little bit of a flashback at the yeah. beginning. Anyway, these city folk ride into town, in other words, people who have learned how to dress themselves in something other than burlap sacks and mud. Uh, they show up into town, they are teenagers, they're driving dirt bikes around just outside the shop that Lance Henriksen owns. Lance Henriksen uh, goes down the uh, uh, back to his house to pick something up, 
the feed that he needs to deliver to this other family because you know he deals in feed and you know these guys live in mud and while he's gone for five minutes one of the dirt bikes hits his kid who's run out after his dog uh nobody there's no phones anywhere there's no hospital anywhere even when lance hendrickson turns up and his son's still alive he picks his son up even though we're told you're not really meant to move people after having an accident jiggles him about the place takes him home doesn't even call anyone doesn't even go to a, a hospital or anything lets his son die the moment his son dies he takes him to the old witch in the in the mountains who then unleashes pumpkin head even though she says that raising the dead is not her You'll thing pay the ultimate price but she also said that raising the dead is not her thing yet she's able to raise pumpkin head so that was it yeah it, but it's really well done because uh you i got into the story right I, I wasn't scared. No, it's not scary. So... I mean, it is if you were a kid and if it was I think, yeah, I think night time and, and if you right. had the right atmosphere, sure. But in today's, you know, whenever we started it, 2, 2 p.m. Well, it was a fantasy horror. There was lots of smoke. There was lots of... You know, there was a witch. There was a monster. There was a... Twi- you know. Yeah. Um, and everyone... Because halfway through the movie, I was like, I really don't know who to be siding with because everyone is ambiguous. You know what I mean? Like, everyone has... There wasn't really one out-and-out good people, although there were a couple here and there who weren't as bad as the others, the ones who ultimately survived. But I really enjoyed it, but it's just a hokey... It was enjoyable, but it wasn't scary, is how I'd say. Right, it's just a hokey family, not quite family-friendly, but more or less family-friendly monster movie. Mm -hmm. With a family-friendly name, Pumpkinhead. Right, Pumpkinhead. (laughs) (laughs) I like the name of the movie. Yeah. Uh, what did you the think? The name actually had... sounds very scary. What do you think of the monster itself? <clears throat> not scary. I don't know why. I don't know what makes that not scary, but alien scary. Right. Well, aliens are better suit, I think. Because they had the same shaped head. Right. There was an alien quality to it. But uh, but there was something about it that maybe if they didn't show it, I don't know what I don't know what they could have done to build more tension. Right. Somehow you saw it too much. But it was very glossy. It looked to me like Army of Darkness. Like it had that gloss over it. It had that it shine. It was it very enjoyable and I liked the acting. Yes. And I thought everyone did really well. I just for some reason wasn't scared. And actually it was kind of nice to see a movie where everyone's character was sort of ambiguous. No one was the out and out hero. Right. Everyone had their moments of being <clears throat> either a hero or a villain. Yeah, including that little kid. Right. The one that tells him where to find the, the, the dirt kid, yeah. the kid that lives in dirt, yes, with his inbred family. Pigpen. Yeah, I mean, it was. I don't quite know when this was meant to be set because there was a family literally living in a medieval-looking dirt hut town like that. Bring out no, the dead scene. In I think Holy that Grail. was uh, early eighties or whenever it was filmed. Yeah, that was ridiculous, though. I think that's still today's. Okay. But, I mean, it was very overly stylized. I thought that whole grime and, you know, kids wear... I mean, there was one point, a guy pulled up in a pickup truck to the small um, shop that Lance Henriksen run with five of his kids in the back of the pickup truck, all of whom were wearing brown potato sacks and covered in mud like they lived in the Dark Ages. It was ludicrous. But fun, you know. We had neighbors like that. They were called the Webbies. (laughs) (laughs) In Oregon, I'm not, you think I'm joking? You had neighbors who lived in mud wearing potato sacks. <laughs> well, just about. 
They made black. They made a maze in our blackberry patch. And then this other uh, <laughs> Mama, they're making a maze in my blackberry patch. What's and, going on in your in your country? <laughs> it, they were really weird. They were renting next door. Renting. And when my brothers and I and um, our friend Daryl would go play basketball at hoops out in the sure. in a driveway, sure. they the whole family would get folding chairs and come onto our property line and watch us play like we were some kind of basketball team. Mama, I'm not kidding. The neighbors have got out that fancy That's hoop how weird they were. But they thing. wouldn't talk right. or cheer or anything. They'd just watch us. Like, I'm not sure they and had they a TV. Have, did they have mud on their faces? They were dirty. They were but the did they have mud on their faces? <laughs> no, but they, in the Blackberry maze, they would make secret ways in. And Teddy, they'd always, um, Teddy was a kid from Alaska that would come visit in the summers to his grandparents. And he... Uh, wait, wait a minute. He would come visit the Webbies or no, he would come visit you? His, no, his grandmother who was in the neighborhood. We're sending and Teddy down again. To, What's going would, on? You've got Teddy, Teddy from Alaska who, comes, who sounds honestly Teddy. like a mentally retarded child. We send Teddy down to the Southerners every... Teddy <laughs> would come over to our house but then he'd have to, you know, ride his bike home or oh, of course, walk yeah. home. And then they would, when he'd ride his bike, they'd pull a rope. They, they'd pull on a rope and he'd fall off his bike. What? Or they would throw, like, rocks and things. And he, you couldn't find them because they're hidden in the blackberry patches. The Webbies would, would attack I'm telling you, there's a bunch of them. So it was Webby and versus they would Teddy. Steal, and they would steal our books. They would steal your books. But Not then they would be them. fascinated by your ball no. and hoop game. Uh, no, I'm going to tell you, they weren't reading them. That's what I'm going to say. They desecrated the books. That's unbelievable. <laughs> like, no, I can't believe I'm telling this story. That's we, great. That's so going on the I show. I can't believe that those kind of people exist. Those those For um, And then our neighbor who owned the house and property, <laughs> he, he had to uh, he had to finally stop renting it and sell it because it was people like that moving in. That, that was incredible. And we, build, we actually built a fence because of them. I just imagine that. Mama, so, they're playing that ball and hoop game. That was again. in a small town in Oregon. Get out the folding chairs. But there, there's a web. I mean, there's I think sometimes two of them in the same grade. That's how, how many they of were. Them. Yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. And that with that, that ends All our right, coverage so of Pumpkinhead. The yeah. next film that we watched after Pumpkinhead was The Mist. The Mist. The Mist. Mm-hmm. Which I've always liked because it's a good old-fashioned monster movie done in modern day it's Stephen King it's Frank Darabont it's the cast of The Walking Dead plus um, uh, Thomas Jane who's always watchable Uh, and it starts off it's like you know once the mist envelops the supermarket and the shit hits the fan he does that nice um, Lord of the Flies thing, separates everyone off, and they all form their own little groups. You've got the religious group, you've got the foolhardy group who are like, I don't believe there's anything in the mist, I'm going out. And you've got the the survivors, the, the group that, that essentially you as an audience are following, the people you're actually with. My problem this time around with the film, uh, well, we'll talk about the ending in a minute, but, the, but the, my main problem with, I had with the film is that I realised that uh, the religious group, which is set up very much as possibly as dangerous as the monsters that are in the mist oh, I think, to the survivors. Uh, uh, Janine and I agreed that she was the ultimate monster. Right. She's the ultimate human monster. They're set up as a bad influence on people. They're set up as something that shouldn't be going on. You're not meant to like them. You're well, meant they to... they killed that uh, right, military they killed guy. the military guy. 
you're meant to not like them at all, and yet, and yet, the everything she says, apart from the God stuff, but everything she says about what the monsters are going to do, and the fact that they are protected by the Lord and all the rest of it, comes to pass. No, but see, that's the thing. Is of course someone else is going to die. I mean, that. But that's how these. Um, uh, what do you call those? Uh, evangelists. Evangel- yeah, evangelists. That's how they do it. They already know what's happening. But just because you say it's going to happen, like if you say if this water boils, that proves my point. No, no, and I then understand the water all boils, that. But it was only it was obvious people were dying, so it was very obvious for her to say, "Oh, and there will be another death tonight." And then if there was, it, you prove right. No, if no, there's not, she'll make up some other. I didn't mean tomorrow. that, but the, but the, that I all understand and I agree with. But they used to tra- she used to try to advantage. She was the town crazy. The one would listen I understood. to. I understand that, and that that I'm fine with. But there was that bit where the bug comes into the store, yeah, and is right in front of her, and instead of attacking her, flies away. Okay, well, I don't see that as anything. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is, you're right. In reality, it wouldn't matter how many coincidences happen. I would still think she was. I think crazy. that bug scene just reinforced in her head that she was the vessel of God, that she believed herself to be. Understood. She started believing her own bullshit. bullshit. But yeah. in in the in in a movie, in a movie, as an audience, you are presented with certain things that uh, lead up to a conclusion. Right. Now you can talk about coincidences all you like, but if the movie shows you x amount of coincidences. Just as an audience member, okay, well then you question they what want it is. You, but, well, then that's the thing is maybe they want you to, the director wants you to say, or you could watch it this way as it was the wrath of God. Because I guess you could. Right, but that's what bothers me is I don't want any movie telling me that there's a, a Well, God, maybe you, know. you just, I mean, do you not like ambiguous movies? No, it wasn't. I don't. That's what I said. Is this is the first time I watched The Mist and I felt like her character wasn't as ambiguous as I used to think it was. Anyway, that that was one of the things problems I have with it. I still like it. I still love it, and I don't have a problem with the effects like a lot of people do. As for that ending, which is a notorious splitter of people's opinions, what do you think of it? I don't think it could end any other way and be as powerful. And I, I, of course, I want them, to, those five, to get away. Right. And to find, you know, get out of the mist. Of course, that's what I would want to happen. And I wish it could happen. But um, I think it's better just to show you that if you, you know, once you give up hope, once you really think this is it, then you do just die. And you do just go mad. Right. And that's what it shows you is that you can never give up hope. They... Had they just sat in that car another 10, 20 minutes, they would have, you know, all been rescued. Right. But they gave up. Uh, I mean, understandably, but at the same time, that is death, you know. See, I don't think understandably. I think that if it was me and I was in that car, I would wait until there were monsters all over the car attacking me, trying to get into the car before I did anything. Or starving, because they didn't get those grocery bags. Or starving, right. Yeah, because the... It, it would never be a case of, oh, okay, our number's up, so here we go. That's what yeah, doesn't I, sell it to I don't me. like it. And I wish he didn't grab the gun. I noticed that this time when the little boy and the woman were saying, don't get it, don't get it, no, let's just go. And right. he reaches over the hood and grabs the gun. Because had he not had the gun, they wouldn't have been able to kill themselves so easily, if at all. Right. But what I, what I, what I like about the ending is that I agree with Nick 
Nick doesn't like the way it's done, doesn't like the music, doesn't like the overdramatics of it. And I understand where he's coming from on that. However, the idea behind the ending, like the horrific idea of the ending, I like that as an idea, as a concept, I like that. And I like that there is a movie that has the balls to end itself like that. Even if it's not necessarily the ending for this movie, or it's not the ending that the Stephen King fans would want, or it gives a different message, or it changes the meaning of the film for people, or whatever it is, or even if it's an ending that feels slightly tacked on and awkward, I like that a film exists that explores that idea, the idea of the one survivor. Because, and also... And, and then the one survivor going mad. Of course. Also, if you think about it, m- lots of horror movies have one survivor, but it hasn't... They have not been so directly involved in the deaths of the other protagonists. That's very true. No, I do think it's a good ending, like I said, and I'm not sure... I feel like any other ending would be a bit of a cop-out. Right. Unfortunately. Well, the funny thing and is, is what Frank Darabont does with the ending that he's put on this movie is he essentially gives people the happy ending. In other words, the Stephen King ending is not the happy ending, it's the down ending. This is a happy ending, but it doesn't leave any audience member happy. That's what's clever about it. Right. Now, it's a, it's a really good idea. I could, people could debate me and, and I could debate them f- forever because it comes down to personal preference uh, as to whether this ending belongs on this particular movie. Um, I but, think this ending absolutely belongs to this movie. Right. Because you have to explore all those characters and all the different sides and the human psychosis and, you know, what will happen if, you know, like they said, when you, you know, when you take away um, any kind of certainty and you put fear into people, how everyone goes, you know, bonkers and starts listening to the lunatics well, that's or the anyone thing that has that... a salvation. So you explore all this stuff and then not to have that kind of ending... Um, that that's when you do have this kind of interview. You can't tack this on to any other film. I don't like that. No, no, I'm just... What I mean by that is that, you know, this, this film is also the film of The Mist, the Stephen King story. Um, so you can debate that Frank Darabont could have put it on another story that, that it equally would have fitted. But yes, there's a much longer discussion to have about uh, uh, The Mist. Uh, overall, though, I, I, I do still like the film. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to move on to our last... No, not our last movie. What am I saying? Uh, the third movie, The Burning. I think it was my last movie because I fell asleep in the, <laughs> in the last, last one. one. But, yes, The Burning. I really, really enjoyed that. It, um, I could watch that film even if it wasn't a slasher film. It was just a really well done comedic, and not that I thought that they were necessarily going for a comedic look, but it was just a summer camp with a bunch of characters that I was getting involved in. We were all cracking jokes along with them, and uh, it could have just been a summer camp movie that I watched, like a, a Meatballs, but not as, you know, goofy. Right. Um, but then it did have, you know, a slasher involved, and that worked really well. And uh, so I just, I thought it was better than, and I've always loved Friday the 13th growing up, but I thought it was better than a Friday the 13th. Right. Or, or as equal to it. And I'm surprised I've never watched it before. Or heard of it. I would go with that. I mean, it, it, it it's better than a Friday the 13th, certainly in the way that it exists now, it's better than a Friday the 13th because it's not edited and a Friday the 13th movies have been uh, constantly gutted for content, um, literally by the MPAA to the point where a lot of the death scenes don't even exist anymore. So on the fact that you actually get to see some Tom Savini work, on the slasher side of things, I really liked it. And on the 
on the character side of things and the setting and whatever, we got a big kick out of the New York accents because a lot of them are sort of from Brooklyn or from the Bronx or whatever. They're very, you know, New York kids yeah. and or Jersey kids or whatever because it takes place in upstate New York. So, you know, you have a lot of those kind of very New York-y types in the film, which gave us a big, big kick. And, and Well, just for the longest time, there was a huge gap in, uh, what was his name? Cropsy. Cropsy, killing anyone. So you really just well, got to no like hang out. Outrageous. So you just hang out in this camp, and right. you're watching the dynamics of the camp, which is quite funny. I mean, there's a, a Biff character. Right. Um, you know, there's all these different characters. But then it got... Glazer. Yeah, Glazers, that was his name. And just everyone. And you really start liking people or deciding who you like and don't like. But but you usually liked everyone, I'd say. Uh, Jason Alexander is in it. Right. That's quite a big Holly role. Hunter, although very almost never seen. Right, which is um, remarkable because, like I'm pointed out watching the film, she's actually better looking than a lot of the girls we do see all the time. So. Right. But then what I what we all got a kick out but of she was... Does have, she has a Texan accent. She doesn't oh, have so a New York that's accent. That's why they couldn't put her in so yeah. much. But um, what I thought, we all thought was funny was uh, that kid towards the end, the guy from uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Who just looks like Woody <laughs> Allen running through the yeah, woods. Yeah, was, was running through the woods for a good 15 minutes of the movie. They just keep flashing back. He's being chased by Cropsy. And it's just this never-ending chase. And he's just, like, tired. And he's giving the looks of Woody Allen. And so then we started uh, dubbing in what Woody Allen would be saying, like, as a young kid, you know, right. running around the woods. And I shouldn't that, be outside. I have fair skin, red hair. <laughs> I don't tan. I stroke. And things like that. Right. Or just, like, this guy's crazy. He's got a knife, you know. Yeah, yeah. We got some scissors. Uh, it's just that whole thing was so much fun because you literally and I just thought how funny is this the life like my ex-wife <laughs> it's just like you know B-movies when they do these you know extra long chase scenes right and you're just like you all of a sudden start enjoying that almost more than anything else because it's just so funny that this chase scene will go on for 20 minutes right and it'll just keep flashing back like something else will be happening over here but there's still oh let's go back to and you know back at the ranch this guy's still running around and know, I think so. that Personally, of the slasher films that Savini did, which predominantly is Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th Part 4, um, The Burning and The Prowler, The the Burning is probably my my favourite effects piece of his. There was a couple times when I was like, oh, Savini, like, you know, because well, it, it, went, it went gratuitous, it went you know, gratuitous. But yes, uh, in a good way, you know, like right. it's always like fun to see what he comes up with. Uh, but yes, I thought I really liked it. Like well, it's one, of, it's one of those fingers, I could watch again. Stabbing it's really, nose. you know, it's one of those. Right. Uh, well, we can pick it up. Okay. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm surprised I've never seen it. It's got a great soundtrack by Rick Wakeman of Yes, which is a that, that was a prog rock band, um, and uh, he's a famous keyboard player in Britain, and he did the soundtrack. So the soundtrack is sort of. Slightly unique. It's produced by Miramax. It's one of the first films they did as an actual production because they distributed some foreign movies before that. Um, it wasn't their first distribution deal, but it was their first movie they made together. It's co-written by Bob Weinstein, uh, so it has it has that um, sort of interest to it uh, for anyone who's sort of fil- into film and film producers and things like that. It. Um, it did come on the heels of Friday the 13th, but uh, apparently Bob Weinstein had the script before Friday the 13th, although, you know, uh, it, 
I don't know whether it's because it's within hindsight of the Friday the 13th series or whatever, but it felt like... It, it felt like a movie written and made after some of those movies. Sure, because it felt like they finally got it down to be able to have a, a story. Right. You can get involved with these people, right. and then there's this... But it also felt like it was taking the tropes of other slasher films, in other words, like the gratuitous breast shot or the gratuitous kill, and saying, oh, okay, you think you can do it? Well, here's us. We're going to do full frontal nudity. We're going to do, you know, fingers being chopped off, guts being stabbed. You know, we're going to show you everything. And it felt like... The reason why it felt like a movie that came after other slashes is because it felt like it was throwing down the gauntlet to being... to saying, well, okay, you did this, but that's nothing compared to what we're about to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like someone trying to figure out what the cliches were. It was so, it felt like someone knew exactly what the cliches were. Right. Including some of the scenes like rowing up towards the canoe. Although right. even that surprised me because I thought it was going to be a different kind of cliche. But Although um, that's really stupid if you think about it. The fact that Cropsey would have had to have not only then cut those canoes loose. But laying in that canoe long enough on the hope that they would build a raft and then come after him. Like that as a plan of a killer is utterly ludicrous. I right. mean I don't even know how you pass that off as an idea. But it worked. I mean you can say that you can say oh he's in all places at once. And I can sort of run with it. Uh, he didn't really do that, though. Because was, he was chasing that kid for a long time. They, the other uh, had, uh, right, that continuity worked. But there was plenty of times where it was like one minute he was over at this part of the camp. And then you would cut to two people like canoodling in the lake. And suddenly he was there. And you're like, well, I need to know the geography of whether that's even possible. But I don't know. It was really great, I thought. So um, the only that bit, one I would see again. Right. Yes, I like That was a very enjoyable slasher. Yes, yeah, good fun slasher. Yes, it's up there with Sleepaway Camp or Friday the 13th. It's, it's, yes. it's, um, it, I guess those camp ones are good. Yeah, it stands, it stands shoulder to shoulder with those other two, which are, to my mind, the best of the genre. Right. So, I like those. Uh, and, you know, I can watch slasher films. I just, I just can watch them. I don't... It doesn't... The plot being derivative of something else does not bother me. Of course, it's going to be a killer who was... You know, and or scarred or taunted as a kid, and then whatever. That doesn't bother me. Uh, And then lastly, we watched uh, Guillermo del Toro's movie, Kronos, which is, in the quickest possible sense, about a grandfather and his granddaughter, um, a, there is, he runs an antique store, a statue comes into the antique store. In the statue, there is this little gizmo that has a bug in it that when you attach it to a part of your body, sucks your blood, draws that into the bug, and makes you essentially what we now know as a vampire. In other words, you have to drink blood to survive. You have everlasting life unless you are stabbed in the stomach, uh, stabbed in the chest with a stake. You're allergic to sunlight, have to sleep in a box, all the rest of it. So, uh, and it was both an examination of quote-unquote, like, the first vampire, you know, um, and as well as an examination of a granddaughter not wanting to let her grandfather pass away. And then there was a subplot with Ron Perlman as a a sort of thug nephew of this guy who's dying of uh, cancer who wants the bug box thing that attaches you to to give himself everlasting life to cure himself from the thing. But um, even though 
Ron Pillman is going after the vampire and trying to kill him in order to get the gizmo from him to give to his uncle, that would actually be against his wishes because Ron Pillman wanted his uncle dead as well. So there was that going on as well. It felt to me like a short story idea elongated to a full movie without too much more to say. Well, I fell asleep in a few points <laughs> in the film... Uh, because I was on a sugar high, and I think I and uh, and actually the other people we were watching with did as well. So to me, it was a short film because right. I only saw uh, you know bits and pieces of it, and yet I could piece together everything you said. So um, I think it did come across, and it could have been edited down or whittled down. Sure. I enjoyed uh, Pan's Labyrinth a lot more. Um, this one. You know, it's fine. I wasn't prepared for that after a long day of watching, or a long weekend of watching horror films. It was it was kind of one of those things where it put you to sleep, because it was so artistic, and they wanted to say so much, it wasn't really horrific. No, there's nothing, there's nothing that's scary or, scary or horrific in it, other than some of the ideas. And but I guess when I think of a vampire film, unfortunately nowadays that's what I'm thinking of is something horrific. I mean, not. I mean, of course, not, we're not talking about the Twilights or no, but you're thinking, things like that. Yeah. But when you're thinking of a scary movie, vampire, right? You know, you're thinking sort of Interview of the Vampire or something, or Dracula or something. But or even um, that uh, one I watched uh, recently, Vampires, the John Carpenter one. Oh no, that one. Yeah, that one's a good one. Um, no, that one I watched, and you said you hadn't seen it before either. The guy from Ever After. And the lady. Oh, the modern one. Yeah, I fucking hate movies like that. Like The Matrix no, meets Vampires. It, yeah, right. But I don't remember what that. the name was. But anyway, um, and, Scott, that, and that actually Scott scared Scott for Mission Impossible 2. me. That was so scary, that one. Right. But because um, it was like a contagious thing. Ooh. But anyway. Um, yeah, I think it's called Virus or Outbreak or something, something like that. Something, yeah. Where it's very creepy, and you're right, it was a bit matrixy in the slow mo and things. But um, everyone has to wear long coats, and it has to be filled in the and rain. It's dark, and, and yeah, yeah, and the projects. Right. Uh, actually, no, I did like it though. Um, so this one, yeah, fine, I guess. Um, no, it's a very you know, it's very typical of what he does. I think this is one of his first ones. You said it's an early one, so yeah. It, so I think he's gotten better. It's very sweet. It's very beautiful it's got a sort of sense of humor to it Mm -hmm. but it's the reason why i say it's a short story idea is it's kind of inconsequential it it, it, there's never any there's never any peril yeah that's true even for the child and the grandfather i thought he might be dangerous to her once he fully turned vampire but no no. So there, like you said, there's not even much of a sacrifice. No, I mean, I suppose you, the peril is meant to be, oh, if the big evil rich man who's dying of cancer gets the thing and becomes everlasting, but then... But who cares? I don't... Yeah. Um, I, well, I started watching... Uh, or watching... I started reading uh, Strain by the same uh, writer. Right. Galama Del Toro. And um, I... It started out really... You know, good. Although, I, I don't know. He has a style that I'm not fully uh, enamored by. Well, this was kind of cronenberg This was very similar to The Fly in the sense that here is a story that you know, a story of someone becoming a vampire, but here is the story of someone becoming a vampire meaning something other than now he's a dangerous beast who isn't really human anymore. He's going to go around killing people. In fact, he didn't 
kill one single person. He drinks the blood of people who have already been injured or and or dead. Right. So it's not even a stalk and slash movie in that sense with the, with the vampires. So yeah, there was. That's the thing. There was no great sacrifice in becoming a vampire. There was for him. His life was over. He had this lovely, cute life with his his granddaughter, and then why couldn't he have continued that? Well, the implication is that he does. No, he doesn't. Remember? He finally stops Liddy. He smashes up the bug. Oh, he smashes up the bug and dies. That's right. That's the end. So, um, what I'm saying is he could have continued living that. I don't necessarily see... See, but I fell asleep a lot. So, um, was there some reason he didn't want to continue living as a vampire? Well, all his skin was coming off. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, he said at one point, I don't want I, eternal life. I think that life. was I'm because just... he died, by the way. Because before that, he was strong and invigorated or something. Right. So I think it's because he died. And, that that's and was I resurrected. Died. Right. So, anyway, um, you know, if someone And he was called Jesus. I mean, there was a little bit of a Jesus parable in there. There was a little bit of Catholicism in there to some extent. I, I The mean, whole I resurrection like, thing and all the rest of it. I feel like if, you know, if people like it I that's understandable you know but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily something that I thought was you know I needed to see so okay excellent well thank you for joining us and uh, that was our Halloween rundown Oh, well.
I saw a werewolf drinking a pina colada at Trader Vance. His hair was perfect. Our shows at 2upn.blogspot.com or on Facebook under the Second Unit Podcast Network. Our fantastic list of shows include Drunk on VHS, We Came from the Basement, No Budget Nightmares, The After Movie Diner, Doctor Action and the Kick-Ass Kid, and Bloodbaths and Boomsticks. Take one podcast into the shower. Don't be a blithering idiot, Alan. We can give you the multiple podcast cleansing system all in one place and your hair deserves. Our programming is available across all platforms from iTunes to Podomatic, TalkShoe to Stitcher, so you have absolutely no excuse. Listen today and a free naked person of your choice will be shipped from Thailand to your door in a matter of weeks. The Second Unit Podcast Network, bringing you the action and leaving the boring stuff to the other guys. Bloody hell. Who does a girl have to blow around here to get a decent beverage? <laughs>